Welcome to the 99th episode of Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm the 99th Nick Watson, <laughs> underscore NJ Watson on Twitter. <laughs> and today we're going to be celebrating nearly 100 episodes and two years of Paper Team by taking a look at some of your favorite moments of the podcast, as well as catching up with several of our most popular guests. 99 episodes. How does it feel? It feels good. I am amazed that it's gone so quickly. I feel like I look back and it feels like we just started this podcast. It's like, how do we already have all of this content and all of these episodes? So um, I'm excited for uh, 99 more. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw you in this uh, discotheque and this music was playing. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when we knew that we had to create a podcast. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> That's what happened when I saw you. I saw a little silhouette of a man. I think we're just going to get hit with so many copyright infringement <laughs> it's, it's fair use if we keep it under a certain amount. All right, fine. Let's get into this. But before we actually start our 99th episode celebration, ahead of our 100th episode live event panel, we have another major announcement to make. Well, the announcements start coming and they don't stop coming. <laughs> as this is a, a very musical as our episode. good friends would say. But uh, we are actually very excited to announce that as an additional prize to our Paper Tees competition that's been going very successfully so far, uh, we will be selecting out of all of the Paper Tees entrants that have been critiqued on the podcast, whether they won or not, the ones that we have read out on air, we're going to be selecting one writer to undergo a one-on-one, well, I guess two-on-one mentorship from both uh, Alex and I live on air. It's going to be two writers, one mentee. All right, that's how it is. Uh, But so how is this going to work? Well, once the mentee is selected, we will guide them step by step, day by day, as the show used to say, through the process of originating, developing, writing, and perhaps even pitching their own TV pilot script. On a regular basis, we will check in with them at every step of the process, from the idea to the outline to draft, as well as give them notes and feedback on air on this very podcast so that all of our listeners, you can benefit and learn from the process. I mean, whether this will be a regular weekly segment or maybe a monthly catch-up episode uh, is still to be determined, but we are super excited about this idea because we feel that it's something that has never been done before, really just shining a light on and making completely transparent this process of writing a TV pilot from start to finish and tracking the journey through to its conclusion. Who knows where it might end up? Perhaps it will land our mentee an agent or a manager, perhaps a production company will option or develop their pilot, or perhaps it just ends up as just another sound in their arsenal but you know that's life that's writing so either way we're excited to see it unfold and we hope that you will be too and please note that the rules and application process for this is exactly the same as the regular paper tea submission there's no hard deadline it's a rolling submission so if you send it earlier since may you do not have to resubmit we will be going back to old paper tea's entries as well all you have to do to qualify is to be picked for one of our monthly paper tea segments that is read on the air and then the two of us will deliberate and pick a winner at a tbd point in the future whether that's three months from now six months 12 months We do not know yet. We will update you guys when things are clearer. And in the meantime, you can keep those Paper Team submissions coming at paperteam.co slash papertees. All right, so our first segment for this 99th episode is going to be a look back at some of our fans' favorite moments and uh, segments from the podcast. Uh, We put a call out on Twitter, on email, uh, just to find out what your favorite moments and best memories of the podcast were. So we're going to go through some of those now. One of our regular listeners, Miranda, a.k.a. 
MazXXXX. I wrote, <laughs> wrote us this amazing love letter about the podcast and her favorite episodes. And here are some of her memorable moments uh, that she brought up. The first one is from a PT59 episode about managers in TV writing with special guest Daniela Garcia Bruchek. And Miranda said about the episode, this was eye-opening for me as it really shifted my idea of what a manager could be for a writer. Apart from seeming like a legend, you got a true sense of Daniela's passion for nurturing talent. I loved how she mentioned Entourage not being like the show, but sort of being like the show, as that is exactly what I thought a manager was before I listened to her. So now here's Daniela, a clip from the episode PT59, discussing the importance of having a voice and a brand as a TV writer. That's the sort of thing that on the page, beyond story, I can figure out the kind of person you are. I will use the case study of Diablo Cody and Juno. You see that movie or you read that script and you're like, this person has a remarkable perspective. And even though that might not be her personal story, you want to get to know the writer behind that narrative. Oftentimes I'll read these scripts that feel very run of the mill, but there's a tone about the way that they're saying it. that I'm like, I need to meet this person. This isn't just your, you know, kidnapped talking about Liam Neeson enthusiasts, <laughs> you know, like if someone wrote like a taken, but there's an edge about it, or there's uh, sort of this texture to it that I go, wow, this person has lived through some real bleep. Um, <laughs> or they've just, there's sensibility about them. That's what I would define voice as that you're using your writing to introduce yourself without talking about yourself. So yeah. sort of like your brand, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But then because people are so eclectic in and of themselves, right? You know, you don't live out just one story every day. I understand that you're, the stories that you tell are going to be eclectic too. And it's the way that you tell them that I think is going to draw people in. Uh, we're at a time right now where our tours are really thriving. And that comes, I think, too, from like the Woody Allen era and the Scorsese era of these people who have their fingerprints and thumbprints all over their material and writers now, especially in television, can have ownership. And you think of Matthew Weiner and Vince Gilligan and um, Genji Cohan and Le Lena Dunham. It's like you recognize their shows and their writing. But the Darren Stars and the Lena Dunhams, they're, people would argue, are they telling the same story? But they're so different because of the perspectives that they're infusing into it. Yeah, that is great advice from Daniela. Time and time again, the thing that we keep hearing that uh, managers and agents and even showrunners are looking for in writers is their voice, their sense of what makes this person unique and how do they show that through their writing. So that's something that I don't think our listeners should uh, forget too soon. Yeah, it's always about connecting who you are as a person to the type of writing and material you're producing. So hearing that advice from a manager, I thought was very useful for our listeners, especially. I think it was Mike Elber the other day who was saying that there are so many competent scripts. And when you have a pile of 200 scripts and a showrunner is trying to pick what one or two people are going to make it onto their staff, it's going to be the one with the unique voice that stands out and does something different from everything else and unique. Yeah. And off of that, Miranda also mentioned Alison Taffel, uh, who's a writer on BoJack Horseman. That's our PT39 episode, specifically her amazing advice regarding writing. Write every single day. And I know that seems so silly, but I think you got to write and, and, and understand that you're just getting better every single day. Ha and have completed stuff. I feel like I meet a lot of 
um, writers, aspiring writers who like I'll meet with for coffee and they'll say things like, well, I'm working on this pilot. I'm like, great, send it my way so I can read it. And they'll go, well, I'm not, uh, I'm like, I'm like, uh." it's like, finish it, finish your pilot, like finish it. And the thing is, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be the most ideal there's always revisions to be had even even on Bojack there's episodes that I'm sure that it was like oh you know I wish you know this I should have said something you know it it, the art is never complete so but complete it anyway if you're specifically interested I think in in adult animation awesome cool because it's great uh I I also like watch and actually take notes of episodes. How I learned how to write television is I, I, I watched, like, I was, I loved Parks and Rec, so I, like, paused it and would write, this is what happened in each scene. Oh, this is an A story. This is a B story. This is an act break. This is this. And I, and I hand wrote it. That Then I started watching television through a different lens. I watched it through structure and through, for comedy purposes as opposed to for just enjoyment. So if you like animation, look at what they're, why do you like it? pot like watch your bob's burgers episode pause it and go why was this scene amazing take notes on it and then try to write your own and when you write your own complete it and finish (laughs) it and have it ready to show people that's great advice from allison i think that a lot of people need to hear which is just to get the writing done it doesn't matter how good your ideas are if you're not getting it down on the page and having the scripts ready when you get the opportunity you're not getting anywhere yeah there's this adage that perfect is the enemy of good and good is the enemy of done and i think that's probably the truest statement about tv And speaking of getting stuff done, uh, we had another little favorite moment from Liz, who's from our uh, TV Writers Room Facebook group. Uh, She brought up PT-17, the TV Writers Mindset, to help give sort of a practical perspective on how to deal with procrastination and getting that writing finished. Uh, She says, uh, two years later, I still rely on Rainy Mood, Pomodoro's, and the Self-Control app to get my work done. So here's a clip from PT-17, where we talk about how to deal with time management and some tips and tricks for that. Dealing with procrastination is really important because procrastination is a part of life. It's not something you can eradicate. It's something you need to work with. And it's not just about discarding it, but also diminishing it or using it to your own advantage. That is why time management is crucial in writing, especially in TV, where later in that season, you're going to be probably behind schedule and you're going to have to write that draft in two days or something. And so we do have a few tools and tricks that we'd like to talk about on ways we deal with procrastination and time management. So there's this thing called Parkinson's Law, which you may have heard of, but maybe not under that name. The actual quote of what it is, is work expands to fill the time available for its completion. So if you are given a day to get something done, you will probably take most of that day to do it. If you're given a week to get that same thing done, you're probably going to take most of a week to do it, even if you could have theoretically got it in a day, if that's all you had done. And I feel like that'll be familiar to most people who have ever been to university or even high school or anything like that, where you have an assignment and you will just put it off until the last moment, or you will work little bits and pieces here and there because you don't feel like you need to rush it. I certainly find there is this strange paradox where the busier I get, the more time I find to get stuff done because I have to. I can't really delude myself into thinking, I have so many opportunities to do this. I could get it done any night this week and it's not due till until Friday. But if I'm so busy, I only have one or two slots in my week where I could possibly get it done, then it's actually going to happen in that time. Yeah, it's not uncommon also for myself where you have a deadline and then you kind of want to wait until the last second. It's weird, but 
that's how it works. Yeah, it's almost like you think it's going to be better if you give yourself the most time to do it. When realistically, mm-hmm. that's not the that's case. Not happen. In that way, I think there's certainly value in sectioning off periods of time and setting short goals for your writing. And I do this when I write it down in my calendar or on my like to-do list. Instead of saying, do some writing tonight, work on this script, I might say, I'm going to do exactly one hour of work on the script, or I'm going to finish X pages within this two-hour amount of time. Yeah, I mean, there's also this idea where, in my mind, you can fracture your schedule in such a way where if it's very clear what the task is going to be, and if it's a very finite task that you can do in X amount of minute, it's going to be easier for you to do it than this ephemeral, my goal today is to find a job. What, yeah. do, what does that even mean? Instead, it should be, I'm going to apply for at least five jobs today yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. Like and there's also this idea of like frequent breaks, improve mental agility, and change the way you think about time. And that goal is to ease anxiety and free yourself from constraints and concentrate better on the task at hand. And so there's this little time management method that I use called the Pomodoro Technique. And the technique is basically you use a timer, a physical timer, a kitchen timer, to break down work into small intervals. Those intervals usually are about 25 minutes. And then between 25 minutes, you you have about a five-minute short break. The way you approach it is usually you're going to make a list of tasks that you want to do, and then you tackle each one of them in 25-minute segments, and then you're going to X the task that you've done. So even psychologically, you're going to cross it off. And so I feel like that's a method that's very useful for people with either fractured schedule where you can only fit a couple of hours writing or people with dedicated amount of long times. There was an interview with Jerry Seinfeld not long ago and he mentioned that one of his kind of processes was that he would get a little bit of work done every day and when he managed to achieve that goal he would put an X on his calendar and then the next day when he got that done he would put another X on his calendar and then all he had to do from there is make sure that he kept having another X every yeah, day chain. on that calendar. Yeah, don't, don't break the chain. Don't want to break the chain, yeah. And just to go back to the Pomodoro technique, even on the screenwriting side, I think it's really useful. Even though you think a script is like this big block of text, you can actually break it down. I often use the technique when I work on my first draft. So I have an outline with a specific amount of scenes. So let's say 50 scenes. And then for each scene with actual dialogue or prose in it, so not just expositionary scene or establishing shots, just scenes where I'm going to have to actually work on, I will dedicate one Pomodoro, as they're called, or one segment of 25 minutes per, per scene. Then I write for 25 minutes straight just on that scene. And then I take a break, I mark it down, and then I move on to the next scene. I don't rework that scene. I've already spent 25 minutes on it. Maybe at some other day, I'll rework it. But right now, it's about writing it in the first place. And Liz on her Facebook message also added, on a very sappy note for what it's worth, many of your recent guest episodes like T96, 92, 85, 69, etc. are meaningful to me on an emotional level. Transitioning from theater to screen stuff feels impossible sometimes. And then I listen to Paper Team and I'm reminded that, oh, okay, these are all humans. The industry, this daunting Hollywood I made up in my mind is just a bunch of people, same as in the theater world. And the voices I'm hearing sound like my friends. It's encouraging. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, Speaking of the theater world, there was another little uh, excerpt that was memorable for one of our uh, listeners, Lauren. Both Lauren and actually Miranda from earlier highlighted Hilliard Guess's episode. I know that was definitely a favorite amongst a lot of our listeners. So uh, Lauren said, as a father of four young kids, I'm probably not moving to LA, New York, or Atlanta anytime soon. Uh, This was a very valuable episode for me personally. So here's Hilliard kind of telling us how he got his start in the entertainment industry, you know, outside of the system. And I grew up in a neighborhood in Palo Alto. Now, whenever I say Palo Alto, people are like, oh, cool, Palo Alto. I'm like, no, it's the east side. <laughs> and the east side, if you guys remember the movie Dangerous Minds. Dangerous Minds was where my high school was, the high school in the area there. 
So you see, I grew up in a real gang infested area. So during the early eighties, cause I'm much older than you young chaps, uh, <laughs> it was, everybody was break dancing. So that was a do. <clears throat> so in my neighborhood, which was a blood neighborhood, we all were break dancers. So we were a crew. And what happened was I could sing and dance like naturally all the time. <clears throat> and my mom used to always say, God, I wish you would do something else. All you do is hang out on the corner, break dancing, you know, making money, whatever. Long story short, one day I was in on the white sides, what we call it, downtown by Stanford. And we were break dancing for money. And I had to go to the bathroom. The closest bathroom that I could go to was at this little professional children's theater. So I used to always pop in there, use the bathroom and walk out. I went in there one day and I popped my head in and they were having auditions for free to be you and me. And I walked in. They're like, oh, you hear an audition. I was like, what's that? And they're like, oh, you have to sing and dance. I was like, well, that's it. You know, I've been doing that. So I never forget. You remember children's theater is like one step, two step. There's no real spins. There's no real kicks. There's no real. So I was adding. (laughs) (laughs) I was doing something like, oh, my God, we're putting him in the front. So I got cast. And I ended up being at this theater from the time I was 12 to about the time I was 15. I'd done every musical there. I probably, I think I was there maybe two months out of, the, out of the year when I wasn't doing a show. So instead of hanging out on the corners with my homeboys, I started hanging out with them and started doing, I got just engrossed in theater. That's kind of how I got my start in the industry. Is that also you got to start by dancing one step, two step? Uh, yes, I was a break dancer. <laughs> That's definitely how I got my start in the industry. I love uh, Hilliard's perspective on stuff. He's yeah, great. this Hilliard episode, which is PT47, is one of the episodes that a lot of fans bring over and over again just because of how unique and interesting that perspective is. It really offers a different opinion and, and idea than just you have to break into this industry through the traditional assistant route. Also on the business side, one of the writers on the show I'm on, Nevin, shout out to him, is also a fervent listener of the podcast. He really appreciated and found valuable our pitch document episode, which is PT82. And here's a clip where we discuss how pitch documents are akin to sales letters. You're trying to sell your show or your story or your pilot to someone else. So that means that you want whoever is on the other end of that pitch to say yes. And if you've worked in any form of advertising or sales, you know how that conversation is framed. So for those unfamiliar with the sales letter, uh, a classic sales letter can be boiled down to three parts. Now, obviously, I could get more granular than three parts, but this is the most basic overview of what is being conveyed. The first thing is that the sales letter is framed with a question. So sometimes it's a literal question. Do you need directions? Do you need to write things down? Do you need help getting noticed? The second part is about exposing and agitating the problem that the person pitched to has. You need directions because you get lost around town. Or you need to write things down because you forget your ideas all the time. Or you need help getting noticed because nobody in town is taking a meeting with you. It's like all those infomercials that come on late at night. It's like, are you constantly dropping your soup? Exactly. That's a sales pitch right there in 30 seconds. So you can do that yourself. Uh, now, the third and final part of that sales pitch is presenting the amazing solution that will save the day. You need directions because you get lost around town. So here is a fancy map that updates based on your areas of interest. Or you need to write things down because you forget your ideas all the time. So here is an amazing notebook with fancy features. Or you need help getting noticed because nobody in town is taking a meeting with you. So get represented by the best agent in Hollywood. 
Now, of course, a pitch for a TV show may not seem to be directly related to a classic sales pitch, and yet you can still translate that same basic structure into a TV pitch document. So let me walk you through what that can look like with actual examples from actual pitch documents. So first of all, as we said, you frame the pitch with a question. Specifically, the stories question or questions. Look at the original New Girl pitch document. Their opener outright asks, quote, what does the battle of sexes look like right now? Freaks and Geeks proposal started with freaks, geeks, jocks, preppies, farmers, motorheads, brains. Every school has them. Everybody has been one of them. So which group did you belong to? That doesn't mean you literally had to ask a question at the beginning of your pitch. You can phrase it organically within the natural description of your show, but you still have to frame your story with some sort of context to establish some kind of expectation. It's kind of like when you're writing and thinking about an episode of TV, you're often referring to what is the central dramatic question and also the central thematic question. Uh, what is going to be answered over the course of this? And now that's for an episode, and this is more for a pitch in general. That's great. I guess we must be doing something right if uh, professional working TV writers are taking something away from our episodes. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> For our next favorite moment, uh, Reeve, one of our Paper Tees winners, uh, brought up the PT85 TV Writing Fellowship episode that he liked, uh, where some of our guests kind of talked about their backgrounds and how they finally made it. So uh, here's their advice on giving you the best chance in your fellowship application. Uh, know who you are. I mean, like, follow, yeah, follow your inspiration, like write the kind of stuff you would love to watch, but also know how to sell yourself and, and to, to say, this is who I am. This is what I watch, what I like, and this is what I can write, or this is what I like to write. Even if you're not, and, and if you're not good at it yet, practice, practice till you're really good at it. And, and like Jenny was saying, like, write terrible scripts first. Don't be ashamed of it. You, it only makes you a better writer. You know, writing is a skill like any other. You got to do your reps, you know, you got to hone, hone the, or, you know, sharpen your, your knives and uh, you're not going to be a better writer if you don't write. So if you're like, if you're hoping that you're going to write one amazing script, that's going to open all the doors for you, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. Like that's not how this industry works. And that's not how people see you or, or how you're commodified in this town. They want the writer, you know, a great idea in a, a terrible writer's hands is a terrible idea. I mean, Breaking Bad is great because of Vince Gilligan, <laughs> you know, like anyone, like imagine if like a terrible writer was trying to write that uh, a script about, you know, a, a high school chemistry teacher who has followed the rules all his life. And suddenly he's got, he's diagnosed with cancer and he needs to sell crystal meth in order to, to make it. That could be terrible. Like it sounds crazy coming out of my mouth because it is, but with Vince Gilligan at the uh, helm, it's incredible. I think some of the scripts that get us noticed happen to be the ones I would imagine this is probably true for you guys too. It happened to be the ones where you go, you know what I really want to write? And then you do it because we have the luxury when you're not thinking about budget, you're not thinking about what network it goes on. You're not thinking all those business concerns when you're writing a spec pilot, you don't really have to think about that. You have the luxury of that openness. Like just write the thing that, that, that you're passionate about and you want to write. Yeah. The pure joy of inspiration, yeah. like the great ideas just flow out of you. And I think I've written some of my, best scripts or zaniest scripts, but ones that got a lot of attention in a weekend. You know, it's just like, I had this idea and I was like, oh man, I was going to do stuff with my friend. I had brunch <laughs> plans, but I'm like, no, I got to sit down and write this. And before I know it, it's 5 a.m. Uh, Monday morning. And I'm like, well, I finished this thing and I don't know if it's any good or not, but man, that was fun. Yeah. Going off of that, I think it's important to have fun. I think it's important to have that perspective and not get into the bitter kind of mode of like, why haven't I been staffed yet? Why haven't I gone yeah. to the fellowship yet? 
it's important that this is a process if you were not, you know, trying to be a writer, that you'd be okay just writing specs and pilots on your own or whatever it is that it brings you joy to do this weird thing that we all do and not have this, you know, perpetual FOMO because you're going to have that no matter what, but to have perspective on it and also have a well-rounded life of like having other writer friends to commiserate with, to celebrate with, it's important. You need the community and to have that kind of perspective. Yeah, this is an episode I feel a lot of our listeners could benefit from, specifically in terms of practical advice about making yourself different. And this ties back to something Daniela brought up earlier regarding branding. Right. Even in specs uh, of existing shows, you can find a way to let your voice uh, bleed through and, and show how you're going to be different and special. And on a structural level, Alexander Smith tweeted out that he really loved our Weaving Storylines episode. He said, PT53 is one that I took notes on and drew from heavily when writing my debut comedy pilot. Your use of the phrase fractal comedy made something click. So now here is us talking about fractal structure in comedy and what ABC stories look like in drama. For dramas, by and large, the same idea remains about cutting back from the A story to then return to it. However, I want to say it's kind of hard to be prescriptive when it comes to exact scene count for drama scripts, as every genre will tackle that pacing differently. Legal procedural may stay with its A story longer than a science fiction ensemble show that needs to set up the world. Now, that said... When I work on a new pilot, I kind of tend to look at the ABC structures of similarly paced shows. So for example, I was writing a pilot kind of akin to a primetime soap. So I started looking at pilots of other primetime soaps. One of the pilots I looked at the most was actually Revenge on ABC, which had a clear five-act ABC delineation. It's appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> ABC. Maybe that's why there's uh, the ABC network. Uh, definitely not. Uh, now, <laughs> I'm also familiar, obviously, with most of the Shondaland pilots. I mean, we've talked about some of them on this very podcast multiple times. However, the pacing of those shows is a bit too extreme for me. Uh, Shonda shows tend to run the alphabet, so it didn't quite fit with what I was going for. And the same can be said about my period piece, where I looked at some HBO dramas like Band of Brothers and Rome to get a sense of how they would intertwine those plot lines. The bottom line is this, when it comes to figuring out the back and forth of a story, I personally tend to look at pacing over just the content when I try to find examples to imitate or get inspired by. But again, these are just jumping off points for my outline, not necessarily the structure that will be carved in stone for the draft. And when we're looking in each act at maybe how many scenes or beats from each story should be present, for comedy at least, I like to go with the rule of threes. There are three beats in a joke. It's a setup, a confirmation, and a punchline. And then so flowing on from that, you have this kind of fractal thing where there are also three major beats in a scene. There are three major beats in an act. There are three kind of beats when you really break it down in a story. Like I said, it's fractal. Now, obviously, this isn't set in stone, but it's a good kind of minimalistic guide to get you started. And you can just feel it out from there and what works for you. Yeah, I think once you have that basic understanding of how comedy functions and that rule of threes, it's a lot easier to take it from there and get trickier with it and break the rules. Uh, another episode that our listener Miranda mentioned enjoying was the Branding Yourself episode, PT86. Uh, and she said, this episode gave me a great framework to write my own story and branding and helped me prepare for a great meeting I had a few weeks ago, which went really well. So thank you. Here's a little clip from PT86 that speaks to that. 
At its most basic level, understanding who you are as a person is important because it's going to help you to know what it is that makes you, I guess, diverse in the broadest sense of the word in terms of diverse point of view and background and experience. And speaking of experiences, I think your unique ones are going to help a lot, right, Alex? Knowing those experiences will help you determine what is something only I can provide in a writer's room. So a lot of shows with specialized topics want those talented writers with unique professional experiences in the room. So if you're a veteran or work in the military, you will have a higher chance of getting staffed in an action-heavy drama, which needs that expertise and lingo. And if you were a lawyer, you can more easily parlay that knowledge and experience into a position on a legal drama. And the same goes for pretty much any professions. But it doesn't have to just be a one-to-one professional thing. Think about your unique personal experiences. Were you adopted? Are your parents divorced? What is your greatest personal failure? How close are you with your family? When did you last cry in front of another person? These are very intimate questions and I'm asking them for a simple reason. In the res room, things will get personal. You will spend more time with these five to 10 strangers than probably anyone else you know. So the earlier you are comfortable with what you as a person can bring to that table, the better. I last cried in front of another person two minutes ago when Alex didn't like uh, the way that I said something. (laughs) Yeah, paper tears. It's going to be our our new episode. But it doesn't mean you will have to define yourself by these experiences. I'm talking to you, Nick. You don't have to define yourself by that time you shed a tear in front of me. It's, it's It's all good. Or that you will be forced to share those experiences with other people. It just means that you as a real hero and real human being, have to be confident enough to tap into those moments, either in your scripts or in person in those rooms or even in those meetings. So honestly, if straight white Midwestern bros can do it, you can too. No offense to your straight white Midwestern bros listening to us today. <laughs> so another thing aside from those unique experiences are your passions and your interests and your hobbies. These are going to help set you apart. So think about what you've had a lifelong passion for, even if it's not something that is still present and active in your current day-to-day life. You know, when I realized that I wanted to be a writer and not a clinical psychologist, as I thought I did at university, I, I looked back and I realized that it had kind of been under my nose all along. I mean, I was trying to write fantasy novels in the back of my exercise books at elementary school. I was constantly writing short stories and getting them published in school yearbooks and crafting Dungeons and Dragons campaigns for my friends. So, you know, it was so clear, but I had kind of lost sight of that while I was convincing myself that I was meant to do something else. So you can kind of find those things that are both obvious that you're passionate about, but also those things that you might have lost sight of, but are maybe still a part of you deep down somewhere. I feel like this is kind of psychology also. So you found your calling. It still came in useful. Right. This whole idea of branding yourself is something that we just keep coming back to in our episodes. Uh, It is, again, one of those things like your voice in your writing. I guess this is kind of like your voice outside of your writing that's going to help you stand out and be noticed uh, in the community. And even within a a TV writer's room, being vulnerable and and being empathetic with people and sharing your own life stories uh, allows that bonding to happen between people, which leads to actual relationships forming. But now that we've looked at some of our listeners' favorite episodes, let's take a listen to our three most popular episodes of all time, which, I mean, by definition, are fan favorites. And our most downloaded listen to episode is PT30, TV Pilot 101. And here's a clip of us discussing the importance of story and structure in a pilot and the balance between writing a compelling hour of TV and writing the first hour of TV. 
one of the most important aspects of this entire episode and pilot are the story and structure behind your pilot. Now, in my mind, the biggest piece that you'll have to juggle with when writing your pilot is writing a compelling hour of television versus writing the first hour of television. And how do you achieve that balance? That is especially true in a serialized pilot, which I think a lot of you listening right now will want to write, because intrinsically, your serialized pilot will not feel like the show because you won't get a sense of what a quote unquote normal episode looks like. You're too busy setting up the status quo or changing it and presenting the world and the characters, but also so laying the groundwork for future episodes to come and that balance between making something for thinking and making it compelling right there and then is incredibly difficult to do. That's one of my pet peeves in reading drama pilots is the first four acts are all set up and establishing the world and meeting the characters. And then the very last act, something finally starts to happen. And then like really the first action that's ever taken towards anything interesting is the cliffhanger. Like tune in next time. Like the OA. (laughs) (laughs) I did enjoy what the OA did in its pilot, but the OA pilot is 100% not what you should be doing, I think, as a spec pilot. I believe strongly in having an engine to your show, as well as setting things up for the series, particularly because it's so important for comedy. You want to try to resolve a self-contained story arc within an episode, particularly your pilot, and also leave a broader arc or conflict unresolved. This is what's going to make it an ongoing series and not just a one-off short story or something. For drama, that's the same distinction between something that's very procedural and episodic versus something that's serialized. And you said you got to set up your series, you got to set up your engine. It may be easier to do for a legal drama, but like even a serialized show has an engine, has some kind of setup that you got to engage in a story and make it clear what is your week to week episode, whether it's a central question or what have you. For Lost United, it was how do we survive this island? That's the central premise. And even if it's a serialized narrative, you got to set it up in your pilot. Exactly. You also want to make clear how episodic versus serialized it is. It's usually a sliding scale. Most shows now are a mix of both, but it needs to be very, very clear in that pilot to what extent that is true for your show. And usually that breakdown is going to be the A story is going to be your case of the week. If it's something like a procedural for drama, that A story is going to be your case of the week. And then you'll have maybe a B story that's also procedural. And then a C story that'll be your runner for the season or a character beat. Mm-hmm. That's usually the distinction. I'm assuming for comedy, it's very similar. Yeah, more or less. Otherwise, just on the idea of dramas, it sounds like if you wanted to go for a heavier serialized show, you might flip around those stories a little bit so that your ongoing series arc might be the A or the B story. And then you might have your B or C to be the self-contained little thing instead if you wanted to go for a more heavily serialized series. Would that be right? Initially, my instinct would say yes. But then if I think about something, even like Breaking Bad, obviously, you do have a lot of those A stories are Walter White trying to get out of the trouble he's in right now. Mm -hmm. And so that's almost the A story. That's him trying to, I think it was Jesse being stuck in the RV with Hank being outside, knocking down the RV, like in the parking lot or whatever. That was an A story that it was self-contained within this episode is how does Jesse and how does Walt resolve their issue? And that ties in the bigger narrative. But I will still stand that I think even in a serialized show, Mm -hmm. a story will still have some form of catharsis, a conclusion within that 60-page frame. Yeah, they're more or less smaller pieces of the overarching thing. You can break it down into individual elements, but they are intrinsically tied to that ongoing arc over the series rather than a completely separate adventure that people go off on and then come back. But I will say that since we're talking about pilots, I think it's especially critical to still have something that is somewhat self-contained in that episode, some sort of conclusion. 
And our second most downloaded episode, Neck and Neck with PT30, uh, was our Analyzing Great TV Pilots, PT54. Uh, This is where we did case studies of Alias, Community, Homicide, The OC, Scrubs, and Third Rock from the Sun. So obviously our listeners are very invested in uh, how to write a good pilot and looking at the ones that have been written well. So here's us uh, talking about some examples of character intros in Community and Alias and how they differ. So in Community, the character intros written in the script after the names are actually very simple. They're kind of archetypes. They're told largely through their costume choices. So you got Annie, 18, tightly wound, sweater vest. Troy, 18, letter jacket, all-American. Uh, Pierce, 50s, prescription sunglasses, turtleneck, sport jacket. Dan Harmon doesn't really delve into their psyche or their what people sometimes call unknowables in the character intros because we're already given that ironic meta-commentary earlier that we talked about through Dean Pelton's speech about what kind of students go to this place. I think we also talked about it in the, the character uh, paper team episode, and you cited this very example uh, in terms of character description. I feel like it's a really interesting example of sort of like a physical description of those characters, but you get a sense of who they are just by what they're wearing, which I think is an interesting approach. Absolutely. But when it comes to the script, Alias doesn't give much description to the characters. Uh, it's kind of all about what they are going through in those scenes. So, for example, let's go to the opening lines of the Alias pilot script over black we hear a rapid erratic heartbeat instinctively we react to this the scariest sound in the world it's the sound of fear close up of a woman's face in slow motion she's scared to death eyes wide looking right at us her dyed red hair and ethereal aura because she's underwater being held underwater we study the fear in her eyes more than fear actually it's shock shock at the certainty that she's about to die this is Sydney Bristow, 26, and unless things turn around real soon, the world's about to lose a hero. I want a hero! <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you can uh, hear or listen, our immediate focus in this episode is on Sydney's heightened emotional state. She's being tortured, and we get to see, hear, and feel it ourselves in the writing. Or at least visually, if you're just watching the episode. And then it flashes back to the main starting point of her story. Yeah, so I think that's, that's a really clever thing that JJ has done there is by making the main focus of it the audience's empathy for someone. You don't need to know anything about her other than how she looks or whatever because of the situation she's in and the fact that you're immediately on her side like, oh, no, don't die. How are you going to get out? That kind of thing. Exactly. And then it flashes back to the beginning of the episode or um, the beginning of her story. So I think that's what I mean by feeling cheated as you want to see her escape. But it's compelling enough that you're going to stick through it. But in the hands of someone uh, less taunted, perhaps, the reader may do some, you know, throw the script across the room and be like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to read uh, how she escapes. Not Flashback to Gelson's grocery store. She, she I mean, it's looks at mushrooms. pretty much what it is. <laughs> like, it's flashback to her in uh, her classroom finishing an essay. So mm-hmm. quite the, the distinction here. And our third most downloaded episode of all time is PT06, which is probably our most referred to episode of all time, specifically because it goes over in great detail the unique process of TV writing and the importance of the TV writer's room, as well as practical ways you can incorporate that workflow into your own writing. So here's us actually explaining why it's important to have your own TV writing schedule and emulate the format of a TV writer's room. It's really important to understand that TV works to a schedule. In any other kind of writing medium, say if you're a novelist, you can kind of do that at your own leisure and pace. You may have a deadline that's been put down by a publisher or an agent, but you know if you don't actually get it in on time, the world isn't going to end. You just have to take a little bit longer. Whereas in television, if you don't get that script in in time, the show isn't going to go to air. Um, 
you know, it's with feature scripts, you can have that script stuck in development for years. They call it development hell. Um, you can be trading drafts back and forth and you can really just take it at your leisure when you can to get that done. You know, the film isn't going to happen until that script is done and then they can start the process from there. But TV has such a strict set schedule that if they don't have the script in time, there's going to be hell to pay. And, you know, the worst case scenario, they actually can't broadcast their show that week and then the network is going to kill everyone. So, <laughs> um, you know, television does work on a clock like that. It's you really have a matter of weeks, not days or not months and years. Once you go from that outline, breaking it in the room to a first draft, a writer might be given on average maybe one to two weeks, depending on, you know, your genre and your show and all that kind of thing, maybe how detailed the outline is. But when you get onto time pressure, especially later in the season, when things are really coming down to the crunch, uh, you can, it can be a matter of days or even hours for, for rewrites and last minute changes and that sort of thing. So, Especially on multicams and that sort of, uh, that sort of shows. Oh, exactly. Multicams are constant, constant rewrites, watching rehearsals, getting feedback from actors, showrunner, director, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, to be able to manage this, this craziness, TV works on a very strict schedule. Right. And it goes beyond the actual drafting of a script. Uh, it's really vital for you to have some sort of routine and regiment even before you get on a writing staff. It's really important to understand kind of the whole process from breaking stories and, and uh, sharing ideas all the way down to rewriting. And the reason why that is as simple is because you will be more valuable as a staff writer if you already understand this entire process and you already master it. Those kinds of skills are invaluable in a room. Also, we'd be remiss not to mention our WonderCon panels, which were PT38, TV Writer vs. Fandom, and PT83, Reimagined for TV, uh, writing shows based on popular IP. There were some really fun events, and there were some really cool insights that came out of those as well. And so we've chosen a clip of Colleen McAllister from Hasbro discussing how they approach their interaction uh, with rights holders and original authors. So here's a bit of a perspective from the business side. I worked on uh, The Grinch when we were first starting to develop it, and it's it was an interesting dynamic because the Seuss estate held the IP, and then we were the production company breaking the story. That book is like six pages long. It's not just a movie ready to be made. And I think one of the things that was super important, because they were also, it's a huge, very, a lot of people know the Seuss books. So that's, they were coming into it with, don't ruin this. Please don't ruin this. And so one of the things that, you know, was part of our actual process of working with IP holders and partners we were bringing on, who, and I would give this advice to any young independent producer who's looking to option something, is listen to them. Hear what they're nervous about understand why, know what they're very excited about in terms of their brand, and then constantly reinforce and do it, don't lie, actually embed that into every stage of the game. So the first time you start talking about what are we, what is the message of this movie? And we distilled the Grinch down to really almost like the dynamic between when you're a kid and then, and I don't know if this is how it ended up because I went to Hasbro and didn't finish the Grinch at Illumination, but was we talked about, you know, sort of that feeling you get in the holiday season when you look at the snow and it's kind of magic. That little thing inside of you, that kid sense of magic is probably everywhere. And then that feeling you get, and as an adult, where that starts, you kind of lose that a little bit, or it starts to bury itself so down deep that you can't find it again. That's the Grinch. 
and then there's Cindy Lou. So we talked about that's the dynamic, and then the Seuss estate felt very, very comfortable in that place. And the other thing that I would always recommend is if you're working with an IP holder, you're working with someone whose IP that you want to make into a TV show, don't cut them out of everything because it just creates so much anxiety. Bring them along with you every stage of the game and be just totally honest. When you can't do something, it's okay. Walk them through why, but bring them along for the ride because you will have such a better relationship if you do. Let's move on to some of our own favorite moments and episodes of Paper Team. We kind of did that briefly in PT50, which was our 50th episode special in terms of the first half batch of these episodes. But what are some of our most recent favorite moments? For me, uh, one of my most recent favorite moments was absolutely our interview with Tom Ruger, the creator of shows like Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain and Road Rovers and Batman the Animated Series, all that kind of stuff. It was just amazing to sit down across from this guy who had made some of the shows that made up our childhood and just hear his story and how it all came about. And there were also some really uh, fun moments in terms of how he got his start in Hollywood. And so I've chosen a clip from that that I'd like to play now. I was out of college and I needed to get some work. Uh, I had driven uh, from New Jersey to LA in search of specifically work in animation because I had pursued animation in college and I had been drawing since I was a kid. I was a big fan of Hanna-Barbera. And the first day I arrived, I called up Hanna-Barbera and I asked for Bill Hanna and uh, <laughs> they connected me to him. Uh, he wasn't in at the moment, uh, but then uh, a few hours later in the phone booth outside my motel where women of the night were answering the phone, <laughs> the phone rang and it, it was a call from his office for me. And a few moments later, there was a knock on my little motel room door and it was one of these lovely young women, said, are you Ruger? There's a phone call at the booth, but hurry it up. That's a business line for us. <laughs> so Bill Hanna was on the phone. He said, we're really busy. We have a lot of shows. Joe sold all these shows. Get right over here. <laughs> and so literally, I got, I got a job at LA my first day here. I was given a one-month trial period, and I survived, and I stayed there a couple of years doing animation. So that was not writing. I was animating and assistant animating for classic animators who were working on shows. Now, I loved Hanna-Barbera stuff when I was a kid, so this was like a dream job for me. Yes, that's a great story from Tom. Who were some of your favorite guests? I actually really enjoyed Bob Dearden, uh, which was our PT87 episode, uh, specifically because he shared his unique journey uh, going from an intern working for Rob Thomas all the way to being staffed on iZombie. Uh, and one aspect of that interview that I really appreciated was him breaking down the process of how they work in their own writer's room. So here's a clip from that. Breaking an episode for us, you know, to start at the beginning of the season, what we typically do is talk for a week or two about the season arcs because we're, you know, we're heavily serialized as well as having the procedural element. So we talk about the season arcs, we sort of go character by character and decide, I guess, first, where did we leave off last year? What are the implications of that? And, uh, and where do we want to end this season? What do we want the, you know, the journey of each character to be? Then we start talking about what are the specific, um, you know, sort of signposts along the way or turning points um, in each storyline. And we very loosely, like we divide our board up into 13, we have 13 episodes. So we divide up into like 13 columns. We very loosely map out, you know, what's going to happen and when as far as these big moments for our character arcs. And then from there, we start talking about individual episodes and whatever episode it is, it's, it's a similar process on a smaller scale where we look at where everybody left off last episode, 
talk about where we want them to be by the end of this episode, uh, and then try to devise, you know, storylines for each character that will get us from, from one point to the other. And there's always a bit of math in there too, or just sort of logistics where you're, you know, some actors are signed to a contract that only allows them to be in 10 of 13 episodes, for instance. And so you kind of have to figure out like, where can we put an episode long gap in so-and-so storyline? And how can we make that make sense that, you know, why Peyton's not showing up? Why, why not? And so we kind of have to map that out as well, which is, uh, you know, not the most uh, creative place to be operating from. It's just sort of the contracts are what they are. So you uh, you have to kind of map things out that way. Sometimes you have to map things out based on the needs of production. Uh, you know, if a certain episode has like a big set piece uh, or a lot of, um, you know, zombies that we call Romeros that are fully made up there's a pretty huge bump in costs associated with that. So maybe the next episode we have to dial things back and make them more affordable. So considerations like that kind of uh, play into it as well, but more on the creative side, we just kind of figure out the character arcs. And then once we've got a general idea of what all of our other characters, like we usually leave uh, live to, to last, unless there's a specific serialized arc that has to be continued. Like one of her boyfriends died last episode. We should probably address that we usually leave her to last or, or we leave the case to last. And so when we figure out where everyone's at and what's happening in their ongoing arcs, we then try to brainstorm like what is the, the most fun personality for her to have to adopt this episode that either gives us the ability to lean into everything else that's happening or provides like a funny contrast to whatever else is happening. So that's kind of our process. And then we just kind of map out all of the beats. Uh, you know, we, we do our sort of A through D or E story, you know, put each beat on an index card. We map those out individually, almost like they're in a vacuum. And then we try to merge them all on the big board and figure out how they play off each other and, and what are good transitions from this storyline to that one. And, you know, what should be the, the moment that brings us into a commercial break and, and all that stuff. And then once we have um, the episode mapped out just in terms of the, of the bigger beats, we then go through the whole thing as a group and really kind of try to nail down like what each scene is. So every writer that gets sent off to, to write an episode has like a really extensive roadmap of how to get where the showrunner wants us to go. Uh, sometimes even down to like, uh, line for line jokes that somebody just pitches, like, wouldn't this be funny? Uh, and certainly down to small moments. And so you go, you know, you're writing all this down. The writer's assistant is taking notes, but the writer who's assigned is usually taking extensive notes themselves in a final draft document. And sometimes you have pieces of dialogue or pieces of a scene that you never change from that moment until you hand in your draft, which is wise because usually they've been signed off on already. So, you know, they're approved. I really appreciate that insight, especially given that a lot of uh, viewers of iZombie and other CW shows may assume, uh, wrongfully so, that all these shows are being broken, starting from a case of the week instead of the characters. And so it was interesting listening to him elucidate that process that really comes down to characters and story first before that plot and that case of the week. Another guest episode that I really loved was our interview with Logan Creedy, uh, who's a development exec and producer, and he walked us through step-by-step step the process that a production company goes through trying to sell a pilot, whether it's a script or a pitch, uh, to a studio or a network. So here's that. From the broadcast perspective, it's actually really easy to break that down, and I'll use that as an example because it's one of the more rigid ones and it's more easy to explain. There are very defined sort of cycles in broadcast development. There are seasons that, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard about and people talk about all the time, like development season, pitching season, pilot season, staffing season, all that sort of stuff. So 
I'd say generally, considering from basic idea out to hopefully getting something ordered to be you know on the air, the process might take anywhere from nine months to a year. Early summer, I'd say midsummer is about when ideas will start to be generated. You'll start hearing pitches or you start reading specs from writers around July, August or so. Beyond that, you'll start pitching them to your studios and to your networks and trying to get them to you know, agree to buy it and put it in development. You'll be developing that all the way throughout the fall and most of the winter time. Usually most of the networks will kind of take their holiday break to read all the pilot scripts as they've been developed and say like, okay, which isn't in a good enough shape for us to go ahead and make a pilot out of it. Then come January and February, hopefully you'll be getting pilot orders and you'll be saying, yes, we want to make this. The pilots will be made over the next couple months by late April, May, you'll start having an idea of when the pilots come in, like who's going to get ordered actually to series. Beyond that, hopefully you get a series order and then you start staffing up and the room starts like that next summer. And then the whole process starts all over again for, for new ideas because you always <laughs> want, you always want new shows and, and more development. And that process is certainly very closely mirrored in the cable world as well. It might not be as defined in terms of the times of the year. It's a little more amorphous in that case. And certainly for streaming digital services, you know, there are people are buying all the time. But I'd say generally, you know, depending on whenever you start in that process, you can track nine months to a year before something actually gets definitively, yes, we're going to make a series out of this. And then beyond that other few months before it actually gets on the air in production. And that could change so much if something gets like ordered straight to series or, you know, the sort of accelerated timelines. But that's a, a good general. Were there any other guest episodes that you really liked? Well, there was this one episode that was a bit of an oddity in terms of our usual format, and that was PT81, which was the TV criticism episode uh, featuring Heather Mason from uh, Sci-Fi Fangirls and Amy Poehler Smart Girls, as well as Latoya Ferguson from the AV Club. And this was much more of a lighthearted, uh, almost casual conversation about what TV criticism looks like today and sort of the current state of TV in this uh, peak era content. Uh, and one of my favorite moments of this episode was uh, this question about how they deal with fan interactions regarding their own reviews. I was saying earlier, basically, I've been very lucky enough, especially on the AV Club, um, to have really great commenters for like everything I write. For the most part, uh, I, I'm able to communicate with them. If we don't agree, we can discuss it or like it's a respectful disagree. I, I know my colleagues, uh, especially women of color, have not been so lucky. But again, that also helps that I'm not like doing the really big shows. If I were, they would definitely hate me because I'm not going to go easy on them. <laughs> it's always weird because I, I feel like I'm always the one person who says, well, I, I like comments because, again, I, I've gotten decent comments like the Rare time I got like a really, really bad comment. Uh, it was when I started writing for Zap 2 at May at Rest in Peace. My first piece, the first comment was assuming that the white female editor just created a black person name to use. Thought I was a fake person. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It also helps that um, a lot of the times, or not a lot of times, but a good portion of the time, people who are working the shows review, I'm reviewing, whether it's like good or like negative, slightly criticism. I'm, I'm, I'm not going all in on a show unless it's like really rough. They, they kind of respect my reviews to the point where it's like, Hey, you can be cool to this reviewer. You don't get, don't get upset. So it's, uh, I've had a lot of people helping me get respectful commentary. This is not the norm. <laughs> I, I, I'm a snowflake basically. Um, <laughs> yes, my editor experience and my commentary experience has not been the norm. Heather, how about you? Since I write for, uh, Fangirls, which is the the female vertical on the Sci-Fi Wire site, 
We get interesting comments. <laughs> um, they're not all they're not all bad, and some of them like I actually. I actually really like I feel like my instinct is to just be like, oh, these bros with their comments, but it's not necessarily helpful to do that. So I try one. I try not to read comments. I used to read comments on Geek and Sundry all the time when I first started writing stuff. And the comments were always like, why didn't you include Firefly? Why didn't you include Firefly? There's like every list that Firefly wasn't on there. They were really upset. So I think it's kind of like I don't I know where to look at comments and where not to. So on Smart Girls stuff, everybody leaves really nice comments. So I always read them because it's just kind of like empowering and makes me feel better because they're like, oh, this story like made me change how I looked at something or whatever. So I like to read those. Uh, when people come to Twitter specifically to tell me about a headline they didn't like or something else, I'm typically not a fan because I'm like, you made all this effort to specifically come here where you know I would see it instead of the comment section where I just don't read. Yeah, one of the things I loved about that episode was that it really was uh, a conversation between Heather and Latoya, and we just got to butt out and, and listen to their interesting uh, input and experiences. So, uh, one of the regular episodes that I really loved that we did recently, I mean, 40 episodes ago, but <laughs> <laughs> relatively recently, uh, was our PT60 tone. I just think that tone is such a key part of any script, especially in TV, and setting that tone. So, here's a little excerpt where we talk about why tone is so important and how it can change things. Let's uh, define tone. And first of all, why is tone so important? Well, if you think about it, both the show Psych on USA and The Shield on FX are police procedurals, but they are essentially polar opposites of shows. And the, one of the big differences there is the tone that they take. For a closer comparison, think about Psych and The Mentalist. Now, those are two almost identical shows conceptually, but one is a comedy and one is a drama. Again, think about Burn Notice versus Homeland. They're both kind of spy drama, CIA type things but very, very different tones. Even recently, think about the difference between Arrested Development and Ozark. Oh. They both have Jason Bateman playing a similar kind of character trying to hold his family together in the face of money laundering and such. But one is uh, very comedic <laughs> and one is very dramatic. Are you saying Jason Bateman is kind of a subgenre of TV? Right essentially. Now? Okay. Tone is essentially how you approach the content, if you think about it. It's not something necessarily as tangible as intense action sequence or cathartic emotional twist or even fun, quippy dialogue. It's kind of all of the above. It's the fabric that binds every other element together in a cohesive unit. You're kind of signaling to the reader or the audience how they should feel about what they're watching. It's like actual tone and conversation. Nice haircut, Nick. I mean, that could be a genuine compliment, maybe not with this tone, but mm -hmm. uh, it probably is more of a sarcastic remark. And the same goes for the writing. I mean, you'd think that the fundamental concept of a show would suggest its tone, but that's obviously not the case, as we've just demonstrated. And it's why I often suggest when you're pitching that you just straight out say, this is a comedy, like X meets Y, and you give some tonal comps up top before you get into too much else. You know, sometimes I've made it to the end of someone pitching to me, and I'm like, oh, so this is a drama feature? And they're like, oh, no, no, it's a sitcom. <laughs> so don't be that guy. The same subject matter can be treated two very different ways to comedic or dramatic effect. The irony here is that Nick has a terrible haircut now. Oh, rough. Jeez. You can do the rest this episode by yourself. <laughs> that was a callback to the clip we just played. All right, moving on to my own uh, sort of normal episode, PT70, which was our non-linear episode. Not that we recorded it in a non-linear way, but we talked about non-linear storytelling in it. I feel like non-linear storytelling is one of the most interesting and unique way of telling your narrative. And it is so often abused in television, especially coming off of a show like Lost. So we tackle the subject in this episode, and here's a clip of us discussing when you should be using nonlinear narratives. 
You could argue that Pulp Fiction's story isn't really affected by the fact that the events don't happen in order, but that gimmick actually enhances the story since it gives you a new perspective to what is going on. So then the question that you asked, Nick, is when should you use that nonlinear technique? And I would say that the initial thing to look out for is for narrative reasons or to have this narrative hook. For example, you have something tied to your lead character's backstory that is meant to be this big climactic reveal. But for some reason, it happens to be in the middle of this character's backstory. So one way to go around that would be to spend your story navigating events happening before and after that climactic scene. And as the story progresses, we get more and more clues to what happened to that character in his or her past until the mystery is finally revealed in that climactic scene. By that point, the reader and the audience will have been familiarized enough with who that character was before and who that character is now. So all that is left to fill is that kind of central puzzle piece. I mean, at the same time, I'm a strong believer in the fact that the way a story is told shouldn't be the only thing that makes it compelling. You, you can't just throw parallel narratives and time jumps into a lo-fi, mumblecore, cinema verite <laughs> sitcom and expect it to make things interesting. You know, the story you're telling should be deliberately, you know, complemented, enriched, juxtaposed in some way, or like you said before, offer the audience new ways of understanding and appreciating the story through that technique. It should always be purposeful and not just thrown in because it seems cool or because everyone else is doing it. Fun fact, that nonlinear Paper Team episode was directed by David Lynch. Mm, mind blown. Speaking of moving through our library of content in a nonlinear fashion, do you want to take a listen to our very first Paper Team episode? Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson. You can find me on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. This is a podcast for people like us who are working their way into the business from the ground up and aspire to be television writers, whether comedy or drama. Every episode, we will be alternating between two threads vital to being a successful TV writer, the business side and the writing side. So half of the episodes are going to be about the industry, meeting people when you don't know anyone, uh, networking, finding work, being an assistant, living in LA. And on the writing side, the other half of the episodes uh, will be about writing pilots, writing specs, taking notes, structure, themes, and working in a writer's room. Wow, what a, a blast from the past. Uh, Two years ago <laughs> to this day. Yeah, I, th I like to think that our the audio quality and editing of the podcast has improved since then. Uh, I also think that I had much more of an Australian accent back then. It's since slipped away, so mm. uh, I can show that as, as proof to people if they don't believe me that mm. I was ever Australian. Interesting. Uh, my French accent has gotten worse as time <laughs> went on. And uh, in terms of the recording quality, it's funny because originally you had a really crappy mic, and now I have this very fancy mic that's essentially what you had back then so <laughs> yes, i was uh had an unfair advantage early on clearly um, another thing that's funny about that is if you keep listening to the episode uh we introduce ourselves and we're like neither of us work in tv writing and so like i always wonder if people go back and listen to that and they're like oh these guys don't know anything and whereas you know now both of us do you know <laughs> i was a staffed writer and you're an alter car and all that sort of thing so i just wanted to update everyone we are working in tv writers i mean we now. were we were working in tv back then it was more in a different capacity than we are now. Exactly. I don't want to lower our standard. Uh, no, not at all. It's not like we started off being random people who had just walked into LA, but I just think uh, it's good to clarify that, uh, you know, <laughs> I remember when we posted stuff to like Reddit, people were like, who are these guys? They don't know anything. And it's like, well, 
update, uh, we, we do know a few more things well, now. Technically, we do know something about <laughs> these things. In case you were wondering, all 99 episodes, minus the two WannaCon panels, have been recorded in this very steamy living room in Hollywood, <laughs> where we don't have any AC or no fans. Yes, our recording studio is Alex's apartment, and it has been a, a fun little experience. It is funny, though, because a lot of people walk in, and they're like, oh, this is so professional. I'm like, is it? We're in his living room. <laughs> like, it's, we have to turn off all the fans so it doesn't make noise, but I, I guess our little microphone and mixer setup looks nice. Yeah, it becomes real uh, steamy and sweaty in here. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know what you're <laughs> suggesting, but I f- feel like we should move on. <laughs> yeah, I would invite all our listeners to uh, come visit us, but it's really cramped and uh, there's not much room. It's basically a sauna. Welcome to LA. <laughs> now that we've taken a listen to some of the most iconic moments from this podcast, let's catch up with a few of our popular guests. Now, first one is from Britta Lundin, writer on Riverdale. Uh, she appeared on our Navigating Your First TV Staffing Job episode back in PT67. So here's what she's been up to lately. Hi, this is Britta Lundin. So since the last time we talked, uh, my young adult novel Ship It came out. Uh, it's about gay fan fiction and Comic-Con. And it's been out a couple months now. And the biggest difference has been that now when I wake up in the morning, sometimes I have tweets from people who are like, Britta, oh my God, I stayed up until 3am reading your book. And now I have to go to school and I haven't slept. And that brings me a lot of joy. Also, we started work on Riverdale season three. And uh, we just got announced that our panel at Comic-Con this year is going to be in Hall H. And I'm gearing up to go to that. And I'm very excited. Since my book came out, I've been doing a lot of press and promotion for it. And I've been going to conventions and doing book signings and meeting fans face to face, which has been frankly, surreal. It's still crazy to me that I can walk into a bookstore, like just any old Barnes and Noble and like walk to the shelf and find my book on the shelf with like my words in it, like words that just like a few months ago were just sitting on my hard drive now are printed on paper in bookshelves everywhere. And then I go to these events and I get to meet fans and they're like sort of clutching my book to their chest and they're like, I, I read it and I loved it or I can't wait to read it. And it's like, wow, guys, those are just, those are just some weird thoughts I had and wrote down in book form. Like, uh, don't get your hopes too high. <laughs> But it's been a lot of fun to meet fans. Just weird, man. It's weird. Recently, I have been writing longhand, and I found that to be super useful because the thing that it keeps me from doing is getting on the internet, which is the worst thing that I do when I'm trying to write. Because even when you ha- you're on your computer and even when like you turn off the internet or you're using an app like Freedom or something to s- block you from going to certain websites, it's still right there and your mouse still goes to it even if you can't click on it or you click on it and it doesn't show you anything. Like it's still, you're just in the mental space of being on a machine that goes to the internet. So that's always been difficult for me. But sitting down with a pen and paper, like an old timey person, like Lewis and Clark. (laughs) It's like so much more useful. It's like Lewis and Clark didn't have Twitter and neither do I when I'm writing longhand. And then it also gives you the opportunity to just write like weird stuff, crazy stuff, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily type because you're like, well, this isn't real yet. I'm just still writing it on paper with my pen. It won't be real until I type it. And then later you could type that in and you could either change it or not change it. But I think it encourages creative juices in a kind of interesting way where it's like, none of this is permanent. It's all just temporary. You're all, you were all just pretending to write because we're doing it on paper. It's a fun throwback idea. Take a tip from your grandma, write with a pen. That's my tip. 
All right, guys. Thank you so much. I miss you guys. It was so much fun being on the podcast. And thanks for inviting me back to be part of your 99th. You guys are doing great work. Thank you. Thank you, Britta. And we do miss you as well. And we hope that the Hall H Riverdale panel worked out. Yeah, that must be a surreal experience to be able to pick up a book on a shelf in some random bookstore in any part of the country you walk into and see your own words there. I think that's uh, that's pretty amazing. So congratulations and well done. And I'm always a big fan of uh, grandma writing tips. So thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag grandma writing tips. Our next update comes from Hilliard Guess, who was a guest of ours back in PT47, breaking in from outside the system, one of our uh, very popular episodes, and he's been up to a bunch of exciting stuff. So let's hear from Hilliard. Hey, what's up, guys? It's your boy Hilliard Guess, catching up with my boys over there, Nick and Alex over on Paper Team. Um, Appreciate you guys having the brother back. Um, It was a lot of fun with you guys. And um, so, yeah, man, I've been up to a lot of things. A lot of things have been going on since the last time we talked. Um, had a couple projects, get into the production side on the film side, have a film, can't talk about it that much, you know how it is here in LA, but the good thing is, um, I can tell you this, Mickey Rourke is, um, attached, at least from what I heard last, about a week ago, is attached to play the bad guy, so that's kind of cool. Um, it's a little post-Civil War movie that I, um, did a big page one rewrite on. And um, yeah, that was a lot of work. I um, was developing a couple TV shows. And um, as you guys know, in the midst of that, I ended up getting staffed on a um, really, really cool kick-ass show for Sci-Fi Channel um, called Deadly Class. And um, that's been awesome. A lot, a lot of things going on in the room, <laughs> which I could tell you about, but it's been awesome. I'm working with uh, my, one of my old friends, Mick Betancourt. Um, show running the show along with uh, the two creators of the show, uh, Rick Reminder and also Miles Orion Feld. And um, dude, it's going to be crazy. It's based on a graphic novel and um, I can't wait for you guys to see it. It's going to be off the chain. Freaking awesome. Great characters, great stories, hella action, character stuff, San Francisco in the 80s, in the punk world. You know, assassin school, it's going to be crazy. But that drops in January, so check that shit out. How did I adjust from being a feature writer who was writing solo on my timeline to collaborating with a room full of writers with a hierarchy and a strict production schedule? Well, it's been challenging, to be quite frank with you. (laughs) It's been interesting. I mean, I've learned, you know, a ton. We're going into week eight coming in next week. We were off at least most of the week for the uh, 4th of July weekend, which has been awesome. Um, so I've been playing catch up here at my office and stuff. But um, yeah, man, it's been, it's been, it's been interesting. You know, I've, as you guys know, I've worked on some, you know, smaller shows, you know, some Go90 Network stuff and, you know, a bunch of web series and things like that, but nothing certainly of this scale, you know, with the network behind you and, you know, 10 writers in a room, you know, that's been a real adjustment. And it was really, really kind of difficult for me. I mean, not necessarily difficult, but just a, an adjustment. And it took me about two or three weeks to figure out the rhythm, you know, of just being in a room all day and, you know, getting up at seven in the morning and, you know, rearranging my workout schedule, you know, and all that stuff like that. But, and we, we kind of are in one of those cool rooms. I've been really blessed, you know, the way that Mick and, um, Rick and Mick and Miles have been running the show, you know, they really let us feel like as if we're in a room where there really is no hierarchy, even though there kind of is. It's not clear when you're in a room. Everybody can speak. The, 
the writer's assistant can speak, even even the writer's PA can speak if they're in the room and they have something to say. You know, so that's been really, really cool. You know, sometimes we'll break the room and, you know, sometimes you'll separate, you know, just different rooms and, you know, try to try to break story. And that's been really cool. You know, even watching the writers, PAs or assistants, you know, come into the rooms, you know, with us and, you know, break the story. And, you know, I always love to see their faces just light up because it's their first time in the rooms, too. So it's been, you know, a lot of fun, you know, seeing that adjustment and, you know, seeing people's dreams come true. Some of the difficult things have been, you know, adjusting to, you know, besides, you know, not going to the gym and your regular schedule for me is, you know, just learning, you know, what things are called, you know, on, on previous shows and even web series that I've done, you know, we didn't have to go as far as having, you know, certain things. So they've been kind of a learning curve, but I, I figured out about a week or two in that, you know, once we finally got our story um, coordinator on, our script coordinator on, I figured out, oh, she's the one who knows everything. So I don't have to bother any of the, um, you know, co-EPs or anybody else. <clears throat> so I've made her like my new best friend. So I constantly go to her and, you know, talk to her about the way she's breaking down, you know, the board, you know, and the way that she's, you know, arranging things, you know, for the timeline and, you know, the schedule, the production schedule, the script schedule, you know, all those things. So she's been a great resource for me. So I would definitely encourage you know, any writer, you know, stepping into a room and, you know, there's things you, you're you going to know. And I knew a lot because I come from production, but, you know, there's still a ton I didn't know once I got into <laughs> high-end productions, what I like to call it. You know, there's just a lot of things we skipped because we didn't have time to do them, you know, or the money or the, the resources to do them. So that's been a big learning curve for me. But at the same time, you know, the adjustment was just was just that. And I just quickly quickly adjusted. And, you know, like I said, we're going into week eight and I'm having the time of my life. One of the things that that I've learned is, you know, you have to judge your room based on what your showrunners want. You know, every showrunner is going to want something different. And so what I found is luckily I'm with some guys who, you know, by six, seven o'clock, they're ready to go home to their families, you know, and that's been really cool. You know, there are plenty of my friends who are on shows who are there till midnight or you know, all kind of kinds of hours of the day. And, you know, I've been really lucky, you know, to be in a room where guys who, if they say you can go, you don't really have to sit around and, you know, pretend like you're doing some work because they're there. You you can go and you won't be judged by it. I think, I think it's important for you to really, it, just using that as an example, is to make sure you know your room and you really understand what I call, you know, the culture of your you know, your writer's room, you know, because if you don't, you know, you might end up with that one showrunner who said you can go home, but (laughs) he's sitting there taking, he or she is taking notes on the fact that you left. That's why I think, you know, you should definitely be the first one there. Um, You don't have to be the last one to leave, you know, depending on your show, but you definitely should try to be there on time. You should be one of the first people sitting in the room when the room starts. Even when you go on break, you should be coming right back. There's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of culture going on in the room. Participate, you know, where you can. There's been a lot of cool things that I've done that I'll share. For example, um, there was on our show, there was a, I was pitching this scene to the room and um, the, one of the creator of the show turned to me and said, oh my God, I love that. You should write that. Now, most people would write just the, um, a pitch for it and come back and really pitch it. I decided to write the scene, you know, as the way I saw it. 
It was just very specific. It was a back in the 80s, a very you know specific time in San Francisco and the punk rock scene world, which is what I grew up in. And so I just knew that if I wrote it, it would make a lot a lot more sense. So I, you know, so I spent the weekend, I wrote it, I turned it in, and Monday morning, you know, he was raving about it, you know, to the entire staff. That was a big lesson to me. And one of the co-EPs came in my room later on. And she said, Hilliard, hey, can I want I wanted to talk to you about your scene. I thought she came to give me notes and she was raving about my scene and how great it was. And she said, you know, keep doing it. You know, I have to tell you, she's like, I I've been doing this for years and I've never had the courage to just go and write a scene. I usually pitch it. So she's she just she said, you know, keep doing you, you know, keep doing it. And so that was a really big lesson to me to follow your instincts sometimes. You know, from that, now I'm being asked to write things that, you know, I probably and otherwise wouldn't have if I didn't take that chance. That's something I've learned is, you know, go with your heart and be kind to everybody in the room. You know, I, I go and hang out with the assistants and sit with lunch with them and go for walks and, you know, all that. Those people you want on your side and, you know, you might have questions and they know them. You know, they've all been working on shows, you know, for years and they're, they're dying to get your, you know, your staff position, but there's no reason to have that hanging over your head. They're your friends too, you know, and there's no reason not to make them that. That's something that I've learned for sure about the room. I mean, I can go on forever about things I've learned in the film world. That That's something that just continues to grow, like with every project I get. Um, I'll give you this as an example of something you should do. If you ever get a rewrite assignment, and you can, there are some studios that you can't, but if you have the option or the opportunity I know that John, um, August, and Craig Mazin talk about this too on script notes, is if you have the opportunity to talk to the writer you're going to be rewriting, you should call them, you know, have lunch with them or whatever your situation is and let them know, hey, I'm taking over, you know, you you wrote an awesome script, you know, here's what I'm planning to do with it, you know, let them know what your intention is. Because it's just a small world and you don't want somebody to hate you. You don't want to have that, you know, negative arbitration going on with the Writers Guild. You just want to make sure that you are open about it and that things are in the air, so to speak, so that you might meet somebody, you know, on the street a little while later. You might meet them at an event at the Guild, whatever. And if you didn't have that conversation, it could be very, very awkward. I've actually seen and been on at events that I've put on at the Writers Guild and two writers who... You know, somebody rewrote them, you know, and it turned into a slight little argument in front of a, you know, a room full of people. Something I've learned is, you know, go ahead and call them if you have the opportunity. Now, again, I prefaced, you know, some studios and networks and producers don't, you know, prefer you not to do that, to do that. But if you have the opportunity to reach out, email, call, take that person to lunch, coffee, a drink, whatever you do, you should do it. With that, I appreciate you guys having me back. You know, there's a lot going on. I got a couple other movies that are, two just got optioned, which I'm really excited about. And then it's looking like another is going to go into production right after the one that's in production in August goes into production. So yeah, I mean, things are, things are looking up. I appreciate you guys. appreciate you, Alex and Nick. You guys rock. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Keep making great shit. All right. Peace. Thanks, Hilliard. And that's great that you found a show that's sort of tailored exactly to your interests and uh, knowledge. 
Yeah, I mean, just on a base level, congratulations on getting staffed uh, on you know a big network show. That's a, it's a huge achievement or cable show, I should say. And it sounds like it's uh, it's right up your alley. So that's that's perfect. Yeah, I do especially love your advice about making friends with the script coordinator because uh, on shows, especially the script coordinator is sort of the know it all of the mythology and the liaison with the studio and the network as well. So that's a really great uh, piece of advice. And also, it's interesting that you brought up the whole rewriting aspect of it because we mentioned it uh, the other week about Snowpiercer and this idea of maintaining contact with the person that preceded you on that script. Absolutely. And I think uh, his tip about going above and beyond in the room, especially when you're trying to make a good first impression, is a good thing to keep in mind as well. So uh, thanks for that update. All right. The next clip comes from Bob Dearden, who we mentioned earlier in our PT87 intern to TV writer episode. And uh, here's a quick little update on where Bob's been at. Uh, since we last spoke in April, we got word of iZombie's renewal for a fifth and final season. So after um, throwing my hat in the ring for staffing season, I very fortunately found out that uh, it was all moot and I had a job. Uh, so we started back up in, in early June and we've been going for the past five or six weeks, I guess, and humming along trying to figure out the last season of the show. And then other than that, I guess I'm just still working on trying to keep my own writing going on the side so that you know I have some material ready for uh, once iZombie's over and I definitely need uh, a new job come next staffing season. The season's going great so far. We've got a lot of fun things planned. There's kind of a cool relief, I guess, in a way to knowing for sure that we're done this year. Not so much in the sense of my own career prospects or financial situation, but in the sense that you know we, we're definitely bringing things to a conclusion. Uh, we don't have to do that sort of halfway thing where you wrap some storylines up just in case, but try to tease more story for a potential season six. Uh, I guess that's the the silver lining of being kind of pre-canceled before your last season is that you kind of get to uh, see the finish line and, and sort of write to it. And so that's obviously, you know, a lot under the purview of the showrunners more so than it is under the writers that work under them like me. But uh, you know, we spent the first couple of weeks just talking about how do we how do we wrap this series up in a way that's going to be satisfying for us and satisfying for the audience. So just knowing that going in, uh, it gives you a little bit of an advantage from a creative standpoint. It's always a little bit tough with a show like ours, especially because we have an episodic element as well, to not repeat ourselves. But we've been finding so far this year, and we're we're only on uh, episode five of thirteen. But so far, we've been finding uh, a lot of new and exciting things to, uh, you know, to have our, our episodes revolve around, both in terms of the, the murder investigation of the week, which, you know, after a while, you kind of run out of clues that you haven't used already or red herring suspects that you haven't used already. But we're finding uh, a lot of new stuff there and we're finding a lot of new stuff for our main character to play in terms of the personality she inhabits every week. And I think a lot of that, uh, most of that credit, I think, goes to our showrunners just for being the sort of idea generating factories that they are and the fact that they're in the positions they're in is no mistake. But we also have some new uh, faces in our writer's room. We had a bit of turnover with some people leaving when iZombie was up in the air and taking new jobs, being replaced by new writers who you know are familiar with the show, have been fans of the show. Uh, and now come in with sort of a fresh perspective and a fresh take, which uh, which I think helps generate a lot of new stories. So that's good. One piece of advice that I've learned recently is that you always have to prepare for either unexpected opportunities or unexpected uh, challenges. 
it does nobody any good to uh, sort of hold off on doing your own work until it's necessary, until it's needed. And I know for me, that's always uh, a bigger motivating factor than anything else is the desperate need to get something done because I'm on a deadline or because I, uh, you know, need to need to have a new script ready for staffing season or something like that. But if I was a smarter man, uh, I would have been uh, working on stuff as diligently while I had a job for the last four years as I did when I thought that job might be over last spring. Because uh, you just always need new material for the somewhat inevitable uh, possibility of your current job ending unexpectedly. If you work long enough in this business, at least as far as some of the uh, more experienced writers I've spoken to, you will be surprised by a, a cancellation or the end of a job, you know, at least at some point in your career. But you also might be surprised by an opportunity that comes along when you don't necessarily need it or you aren't necessarily desperate. But it's great to be ready for those as well, because you just, uh, you never know what sort of uh, a launch pad any new opportunity can be. And if you don't have a sample of your writing ready, that's sort of new and uh, as good as it can possibly be, then you might be watching those opportunities pass you by and go to somebody else. And then six months later or two years later or whatever the case may be, the show that you've been on ends and whatever that opportunity was that you missed might be still going. So just having having stuff ready all the time, working on new stuff all the time, it's not advice that I, I think anyone isn't aware of, but um, it's advice that I, I certainly um, had heard before. I just never really uh, self-motivated to the point where I actually took it and got stuff done when I was when I was working and I had a full-time job. Uh, and now I'm staring down the barrel of, uh, you know, come December or January when this job's over, not really knowing what's next and wishing I just had a little more of a, a portfolio of stuff that I had been working on for the last four years. Uh, but such is life, live and learn. So that would be my advice to myself and, and to anybody else who's uh, who's kind of in the entry level of this world. Well, it's great to hear from Bob, and that is awesome advice. I think it's something that everyone needs a little reminder of to always be working on your stuff. Uh, uh, you never know when you're going to need that, that next sample, uh, and don't kind of get fall into complacency just because you're working at the moment. You haven't just made it. You're not going to always get the next job. When it comes to assistance and lower levels, it can be especially harder to find that time. But even if it's an hour a week or hopefully more than that, getting that new sample out is going to help you tremendously, even with the job you're on currently, because you never know when your uh, higher levels and your bosses are going to be asking for that new sample. Let's now catch up with Jenny Diker from our fellowship episode PT85, as she has some exciting news of her own. Hey, y'all, it's Jenny Diker Estivo. And uh, since I was last on the Paper Team podcast, I finished up the Fox Writers Lab, which was an amazing experience. And um, shortly thereafter, I was staffed on The Resident for Fox. And um, uh, we have been in the room for about six weeks now, and it is the greatest job ever. Uh, I think. My expectations about my first writer's room uh, before I started were that I was kind of supposed to hang back, be quiet, defer to the upper level writers. And while there is an aspect of respecting your upper, upper level writers, the reality was uh, with me that everyone was needed. Every voice was needed. Everyone talks. Everyone pitches in. And that's really what drives TV shows. Uh, so no one can just kind of be a fly on the wall. That's not really what you're there for. I think the biggest misconception I had been sort of warned about was that there was a lot of politics and maybe intrigue and, and um, 
upstairs, downstairs to worry about. I think I'm very lucky in that um, I have a great showrunner and the resident is in general a kind, fun, supportive environment. Even though we are a large room, uh, I don't think anyone's feeling left out. I think the one piece of advice that I got that I would want to pass on to everybody is to always be kind to uh, assistants. First of all, they're working really hard to help everybody out, so they deserve it. But second, I know our assistants at The Resident are awesome and super smart, and they're probably going to be my boss someday. So strategically, I think, you know, always, always, always treat assistants with respect. Generally speaking, they know what they're doing. They they have the ear of uh, the people that they work for, and they're very, very, very valuable. Well, congratulations to Jenny uh, on getting staffed. That is amazing. Uh, I'm super excited for her. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to hear her take on being a staff writer now and uh, her opinion on the politics of the room or lag thereof. Right. I think it's going to differ from show to show. It sounds like she's landed herself on a good one. Um, but I do love her advice, too, about just being kind to the assistants, especially if you've made your way up from an assistant to that level. Uh, I think you have a little more empathy for what goes on there. And speaking of assistance, we have an update from uh, Zimran Jacob from our TV drama Showrunner's Assistant episode. And here's a bit of a uh, rapid fire update from Zim. Since the episode, I started working on a new Netflix show as a showrunner's assistant. I have been writing my own scripts. I learned that it's a marathon and not a sprint. All right, let's go to T.A. Snyder, who was on our TV contest winners, What Happens Next episode, that's PT55, and we did a little one-on-one on location. We are now live outside the carving board in Hollywood with uh, T.A. Snyder. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise. Uh, it's been a while. It's been uh, almost a year since uh, we last talked. Can you tell us uh, and our listeners what uh, you've been up to? Well, the series that um, the TV pilot that I wrote that won the tracking board is now in development. I have a uh, actor attached, a couple producers, just finished the lookbook for it, and we're going out to filmmakers to hopefully attach and direct the pilot and possibly come on as a showrunner. It's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's, uh, it's a lot of steps to go through. It's been a long journey. I wrote the first version of Dead Men, I think, in 2011. And I wrote it as a feature film at the time. I didn't develop it into a pilot, a series, until 2014. Great. Uh, can you walk us through how that transition process worked out from a feature to a pilot, especially on the creative side? How did you uh, either expand or contract that narrative? I had only written features since I started writing back in 1999. In earnest, I started writing in 99 um, in film school. And so when I started to develop the idea, I knew it was massive. I knew it was huge, but I was terrified of transitioning to TV. Didn't really know what I was doing. I'd read, read some pilots, but you can go in many directions. I mean, different act breaks. Every show is a little bit different. At the time in 2011, there weren't that many miniseries or anthology shows being made. And I always saw Dead Men as, in its perfect form, being about 10, 10 episodes. Uh, and then True Detective happened, American Horror Story. You started seeing these things happen. I'm like, okay, I can, I can develop it in that way. As I started digging deeper into the history that inspired the show, I was like, actually, there's a lot more than a miniseries here. I could easily do three seasons to five seasons, which some of my favorite shows cap off at like five or six. So I just started digging in and and, uh, beating the hell out of it and giving it to peers and friends 
to give me notes. And uh, it took uh, several years to get it to the point that it got some heat off of that contest. And how did you sort of reshape that narrative from, let's say, a 90 plus page script into what I'm assuming is a 60 ish page uh, pilot? The way I looked at it, I knew whenever I decided, okay, to get my arms around the core of the story and the core characters to write it as a feature, I knew, okay, this will be the greatest hits album. And I then took that when I sat down to write it as a, as a pilot. I made the mistake at first of pulling the best bits and shoving it into a pilot. And it just didn't have the rhythm that a pilot as a TV show should, where you, you spend more time with characters and I was trying to do too much in the opening chapter and it was convoluted. It was confusing. It was like, who's this character? There's a new character popping up in every scene and the rhythm of it was just completely off. Um, I got a very valuable note um, from actually the actor who's now attached that said, throw away your first two acts of your pilot because you're giving away the farm right out of the gate. You're, you're telling us who the main character is through his backstory, through a flashback. Save that for later in the first season or hell, season two or three. Let's wonder why he has these scars on him. Let's wonder, you know, what's really driving him. And you can see it actively in his current timeline and you'll have hints to, to what is driving. And that was profound. Doing that though, starting with the third act as the opening of the, of the pilot, I was beginning with my antagonist to where there's kind of a, you think they're going to be the main characters and our hero doesn't show up until page 10 which is a bit of a gamble, but I think it's fun because I think the best antagonists see themselves as heroes. They see themselves as they're doing the right thing. And so to, to open that way, plus the two villains that open it up, the, the two uh, female characters that are basically hostages with them are going to turn out to be heroes by the end of the first season. So I felt like it was okay to spend the first 10 pages with them and not have Ballinger, the lead, show up until page 10. Obviously, the, that script has been very well received. Have you worked at all on your own pitching skills? Uh, over that time? I have. Uh, I don't think anyone's really... I mean, some people are just naturally uh, better at, at, at commanding a room and having that personality. I think most writers skew towards being more introverted and preferring to compose their thoughts on paper and, and if they could just read it to the room right. and not have to make eye contact and, and any of that. Um, I think it helps to... And actually, I know that I have something I'm going to finish a script on once I can sit down with friends and even it doesn't even have to be close friends, people that I know from Twitter, just go have coffee or a drink and, and talk out, you know, the story. And if I can hold their attention for 10 minutes and I don't see their eyes drifting or them be getting confused, I know I've got something special. And I think that kind of feeds into the pitch process as well of am I holding their attention? And I think that's a good way to practice is go to a bar, go out to lunch, change up the location you know, sit eye to eye with somebody and really talk through it and get that natural rhythm. Because if you just practice it by yourself in a room, reading over what you've written and just saying it out loud, that's not how a pitch room goes. Like you have to read the room and feel the energy and relate to people. You're not going in and giving a speech. There is definitely that element where they hand it over and you basically are doing that, but it helps to just feel comfortable and realize you're having a conversation and what is exciting for you and what's the best way to convey that? Right. It's about conveying the story on an emotional level to that right. other person. Yeah. And it's key to connect as much of yourself to it as possible. For me with Dead Men, it's a very personal story. Even though it's set in 1798, 
I mean, there are things that happened between 1798 and 1800 that are happening right now in this country, whether it's because the, the alien and sedition laws have been passed. They, if you spoke against the government, against the president, you could be put in jail for up to two years. There was a war on the free press. They were shutting down uh, printing presses because they were saying bad things about the government. Uh, they changed the law where it went from two years to be in the country to become a citizen to 14. And they were actually scooping up people and booting them out of the country because they thought that they were working with the French. This sounds like science fiction, really. I couldn't even imagine any of this today, right? I wanted to do something. I wanted to write something about America. And, and it started with my obsession with the war on terrorism because several family members have, have served the country and fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I feel like a lot of times the most powerful way to address things like that is to do it obliquely. And the hunt for the first serial killers and this group that was put together, the exterminators, they were like the first U.S. Marshals. Like they had the first America's Most Wanted list and they were the judge, jury, and executioner. They could they could execute someone on site for being an enemy of the United States, which is basically what happens in these foreign countries where there's no trial. If you're an enemy of, of the country, we'll kill your ass. We'll, say, well, we send in a drone now, but... At this time, there was no railroad. There was no communicating back with the East because a lot of this went, went on in Kentucky and Tennessee, which was west of the Appalachian Mountains. It was anarchy. They were cut off from everything. So they could do whatever the hell they wanted, really. And there's this whole thematic thread of do we become the things we're fighting if we don't watch ourselves and be careful about the methods we're using, which is always going to be relevant to a powerful nation and what we struggle with. Very close to home right now. Yeah. Before we go, do you have one piece of advice or something you've learned about either the craft or the business that you would like to share with our listeners today? Persistence is key. Um, it's a fine line between persistence and being stubborn on a project. Um, with Dead Men and this other script I have, The Volunteer, I did drafts of them for years and years and years and didn't give up on them. And now those are the two things that are they're heating up. I have meetings next week on The Volunteer. And I wrote that one in 2012. Just don't give up on things that you really believe in um, because they might tell you at the time when you get a little bit of heat, oh, yeah, we like this, but we already have a World War II movie or, oh, we already have something in that vein. Well, okay, that might be the case right now, but three years later, that might be hot again or they, some other entity might be looking for something like that. I have a good example with Dead Men. Three years ago, I, uh, an assistant read it at a production company and he remembered the script and a couple months ago, he contacted me and said, hey, I've been promoted. I'm a producer here now. Do you want to come in and pitch? I think you'd be right for it because I remember Deadman. It always stuck in my mind. I went in, pitched for the project, and got an open writing assignment that was like my first big payday in this business. Three years later, off an assistant read. So this it's a tricky business. You got to hold on. You got to believe in things. You also need to be generating new content. But to me, it's quality over quantity. I wouldn't write something just for the sake of writing something new. Like really let several things be simmering. And the thing that always lingers with you is the one that's going to probably be special. Also, the thing that scares you the most and the thing that maybe is the most unique to your background is probably going to be the thing that puts you over the, the hump and, and breaks you through. Well, great advice. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks. Good talking. And uh, hope uh, we see you next year and the year after that with a great success. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Back to you in the studio. Thank you, Alex. For this uh, great report. <laughs> How did you get another one of you? We double easily. 
that's awesome to hear that uh, TA has gone down the line with this pilot and attached people to it and they're taking it out to try and sell it. I mean, this is everyone's goal, I guess, as TV writers is to be a creator one day. So best of luck to him. Absolutely. And speaking of, we have an update from Franklin Jinro, who was on our TV script coordinator episode. That's PT21 a year and a half ago. And he himself has gone through somewhat of a journey. All right, we're now live with Franklin at uh, the Tender the Tender Greens, the Tender Greens in in uh, Studio City. How are you doing, Franklin? I'm doing great. I'm um, excited to be a guest again and like be able to update everybody on my goings on since uh, November of 2016. It's been a while, yeah. What uh, what have you been up to since then? Well, you caught me at a great time because I'd been coming off of uh, being a script coordinator on the first season of The Exorcist, and I got my first credited episode. I split a credit on episode 109. Uh, it was an amazing experience. I got to go to set. I think I talked about that. But since then, right after the Exorcist season had wrapped, I then went on to my next script coordinating job on Seven Seconds, created and run by Vina Sood. And that was a fantastic experience. Uh, the writer's room is, is just a great bunch of writers. It was a fun experience for me, particularly so because the room was in Glendale. So I was able to walk or ride my bike to work from time to time. But the people were couldn't have been lovelier. It was just a great time. And as soon as that show wrapped, I was actually even before it wrapped, uh, I found out that the second season of The Exorcist had been picked up. And uh, I was told by the show creator, Jeremy Slater, that I'd be, you know, in the running to get bumped up to staff. I waited patiently. Um, it was an agonizing week and a half or two of just waiting. And then I got the news on a Wednesday and couldn't believe it. It was just one of those moments where I'll never forget where I was. It was I was at Edendale Grill specifically and got the call from uh, the point exec on the show. And it was uh, that changed my life. From there, uh, I was uh, had a gr- great second season. I, I loved the room. It was it was different. Um, about half the writers uh, came back from season one, but uh, just really loved being on the show the second season. Really proud of it and uh, really happy that I was afforded the opportunities I was during that season. So you mentioned that during the first season you had the opportunity to write a script is that correct on season one i got to uh, co-write an episode uh, that was episode 109 and then on season two i also got another script i split this one with uh, co-ep who had been on the first season adam stein and uh, that was episode 206 which was uh, another just a uh, fantastic experience got to do a lot more of the second season in terms of uh, like what i was able to do contributing wise like both on set and also in terms of the script itself and how involved were you in the room in the first season compared to the second season it was definitely different i mean the first season it was sort of you know as a script coordinator i was in the room and i was there and i you know the showrunner and uh, creator they were both like encouraging of everybody from top to bottom to pitch in wherever and so i'd pitch in occasionally but it was like the, there was no expectation to so so in a weird way, uh, the pressure was a lot less that first season than when I got bumped up to uh, staff. Then I, I was in a good position because the showrunner of the second season, Sean Crouch, he was fantastic about just uh, taking the pressure off and being very encouraging and setting pretty clear expectations. So I felt the entire time along the way, I was in a really great situation where people were putting me in a position to succeed. And that's something uh, I can't um, be thankful for enough. So how did you prepare yourself to be in the room and um, contribute creatively to the show? Well, a lot of it was sort of just like uh, being patient, you know, and really picking and choosing. Now, naturally, like rooms contract, you know, as soon as like writers start to go off to their scripts and outlines. And uh, so there's as the room gets smaller, it just becomes a lot easier. And you start to really understand the rhythms of a room and just feel out where your place is going to be. I think everybody's a little different. uh, But in my case, uh, it helped to know that half the room already. So um, 
Yeah, in a, in a weird way, it was just like there's a greater degree of familiarity and it was just having conversations with friends on some level. Can you walk us through that process of getting that script and also going on set and how you approach that? Yeah, um, and again, um, uh, speaking to being put in a position to succeed, uh, the director that they had paired me up was the producing director. On uh, This is season two I'm talking about. So uh, Jason Ensler directed my episode. And so I knew I'd be good hands when I was on set. So, you know, and I was up there for the first couple of days with my co-writer, um, but he was there um, and, and then peaced out after a couple of days so that like I could get more experience being on set, supervising. And when you have a great director, it makes life a lot easier. Everybody has, you know, in, in our case, everybody's trust in Jason was so great that, you know, it again, lightened the load on my end, but I was able to really pitch in and just work with Jason, who's just one of the great directors to be able to work with. That's awesome. And what is one piece of advice or something you've learned recently that you would like to share with our listeners? For me, in my case, I know I, I know other people have found ways to kind of bolster their confidence because a lot of times I feel uh, in the room, whether you're an assistant or whether you're a writer, it's just about addressing your nerves and finding your confidence and finding your voice. and it, in my case, it helped just simply, you know, uh, listening to like other podcasts, you know, like I heard a couple things. There was a recent podcast I just listened to by the Craft and Fane who and, you know, they talk and specifically addressed what it was being a first time staff writer. Uh, the WGA Staff Writer Bootcamp is a fantastic resource. Uh, Glenn Mazzara and uh, Kyle uh, Harimoto are both really great at outlining what to expect. And the more you can just digest what uh, the expectations are you uh, are of you in the room the easier it is to deliver and do your homework and so that you can go in prepared and just be ready to be the best you can be in the room. Uh, I think uh, also knowing what your strengths are in general. I think I'm somebody who I think is generally good at hanging out with people. I like talking to people and just kind of making the whole experience a pleasant one. And at the end of the day, it's like that's important um, you know, because, you know, writing at some point shows get difficult or, or very often get difficult. And so like um, having those bonds like set up early, just go a long way, I think, in terms of, you know, maintaining unity and just provide uh, like providing an environment where people can do their best work. And do you have any special advice regarding pitching in the room? Well, that's something I'm still getting used to. So I don't have any special advice in that regard. But I'd say I think for me, uh, just reading the temperature of how everybody else is doing it in the room. I I've been a part of a number of rooms now. So I see that like there's every room has its own weird characteristics and quirks. So really, as a lower level, I think it's important to take the lead and just see kind of what's working, what's landing, what the room etiquette is. I think there are general rules of room etiquette, but really each room has their own sort of specific rules or spoken or unspoken. I think uh, really sort of reading that. And then, uh, oh, I have another piece of advice, which is this is something that uh, honestly is was in the Craft and Fane podcast, but I think is 100% true. Sometimes it's very nerve wracking when you're pitching to the showrunner and they're in the room because, you know, you know, like they're the ones who are the arbiter of yes and no, uh, what's sticking, what's not sticking. And so the more you can have conversations with your fellow writers, whether it's the mid-levels, upper levels, or your fellow staff writers, the more you can kind of test out your ideas, battle test them, and then be ready to pitch those things in the room in a more thoughtful and um, eloquent way. Is it really about talking with your peers before you approach the shoulder or you're inside the room? Some of, uh, some of that is true, yes. And then, uh, But other times it's like, you know, if you feel something confident about something and you're in the flow and rhythm of the room, then you can just say things and then you'll see, uh, hey, that was great. Or 
or sometimes maybe you'll fall flat on your face. But you know what? I think the key is to just keep rolling and just keep plugging away because, you know, it's like at the end of the day, what I found more often than not is like people aren't really paying that much attention to you. Not in that regard, you know? Yeah, maybe you had a shitty pitch, but like at the end of the day, just uh, you're in your head more than uh, uh, you really need to be. Great. Any uh, final words before we head out? So after uh, The Exorcist, I went on hiatus. I was up for uh, a couple possibilities. Uh, uh, one of the things that I highly recommend is uh, once you're on a show, if you don't have representation, is to go out and get it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to end up with uh, uh, an agent, uh, two agents that I really love and have done some great work for me. And uh, I'm really excited to say that I was staffed on Swamp Thing. I'm now uh, just started this uh, is the end of week one and uh, really excited to see what we come up with. Excited to see the result. Thank you, Franklin, for uh, being with us and back to you in the studio. Thanks, Alex. Once again, this is my triplet, Alex, also on location. (laughs) I think Franklin's a great example, again, of persistence, like we talked about earlier, Uh, keeping on working the industry, staying close to those writers' rooms, working hard, working on your craft, and then uh, being rewarded for it. Next, we're going to catch up with a couple of guests who appeared on our WonderCon panel. First one is Ray Yudranachit, who is a writer on DC's Legends of Tomorrow. So here's what's been going on in Ray's life. This is Ray Utarnatchet, supervising producer on DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Since the WonderCon panel, we started season four, and it's going really well. Um, we have Constantine joining the show this year, and he adds a really fun and darker element to the storytelling. The new season of Legends of Tomorrow is actually really exciting. Uh, we keep it fresh because every year is basically a reboot. Um, you know, first season, the team defeated Vandal Savage. Second season was about fixing aberrations or things that were wrong with the timeline. Um, third season was about fixing anachronisms. Um, that's uh, things or people that were displaced throughout time. And this fourth season, um, we're dealing with magical creatures who are messing with the timeline. So that's really cool. Um, one piece of advice I have about TV writing isn't really new, and it's something that people have heard over and over again, but I usually have to remind myself of this, too, um, and that's to read as many scripts as possible. You know, you have to understand how these scripts are written and the language and how action scenes are written and things like that. I really do believe that the language of scripts change um, you know, every few years, the way things are written and how things are described and how people talk. Um, and I think that's important to kind of keep up with that. And to that note, I actually usually have two or three scripts with me when I write on assignment just to kind of like, you know, keep ideas fresh in my head and, and sort of like, you know, see how other people are, are writing things. So I think, you know, my piece of advice is to read as many scripts as possible. Yeah, that's great advice about reading past scripts and looking at the evolution of language, especially when it comes to the prose of the action. Uh, If you compare a script from the 70s, I'm sure it looks very different than something that was written last week. Right. I think it's just generally good advice to constantly be reading great um, TV pilots that come out every year and features and, and things like that, ones that are winning awards for writing and maybe even ones that are not and just uh, absorbing all of that in and seeing what you can take into your own work and learn from. And now let's take a listen to Caillou Wu, who was also on our WonderCon panel to see what she's been up to. Since the WonderCon panel, I've been working on a show for Netflix Asia I'm actually in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia right now, um, running the room for the series. Uh, So that's very exciting. I've been working on a number of my own projects. Um, I'm co-writing a feature with a friend of mine that we're both really excited about. It's a horror thriller. And I'm also uh, doing a pitch on my own. It's a dramedy. It's really quirky, really fun. 
Um, I can't wait for that to be finished. Um, and how do I balance the time while I'm working on a show? I think it's just you have to sacrifice some personal time instead of going out to see friends, you know, instead of going to the beach, I'm writing the, you know, I'm writing the script or pitch pages. And I think it's about rotating them, you know, being able to balance which one has a deadline first, which one I have to need, I have to get to it. And then while that's being, you know, while one project is waiting for notes, I start on the other one. So it's a juggling act. Uh, This is the first time I've actually had to deal with it. And it's been very interesting. But um, but luckily, I'm someone who likes deadlines or who needs deadlines. So I think it actually helps me structure my day. I'm gradually realizing that stories, international stories are viable now. Um, I think in the past, uh, you know, it's, it's always about setting stories in the US because uh, you can shoot in these cities and that's actually feasible. But now with all the co-productions, with all the shows from around the world, I think now you can go ahead and expand those settings and the kind of stories you tell. And that's super exciting to me. Yeah, that's super cool to hear that uh, Kai is working on a show internationally. And I do think it is a great time for international stories to be told. You know, Netflix is doing originals in Germany and Europe and uh, all sorts of places um, in Asia. So it's going to be amazing to see that kind of content uh, emerging now with that freedom to do what they want. And even on the production standpoint, a lot more European markets are joining forces with American production companies and Asian companies to produce that material. I know Kai worked on Hannibal, which is a GoMo production. Production, which in itself is a European production. So it's interesting to see her uh, continue in that lineage. Absolutely. That wraps up our little catch up with our past guests. Uh, hopefully our future guests will uh, go on to amazing success as well. Yes, I think we can uh, take full responsibility for all of our guests' success. Always, all the time. <laughs> Let's close out this episode by talking about our own little podcast and uh, discussing some uh, meta slash stats that you may be interested in. I know everyone loves listening to numbers and statistics, so here we go. (laughs) I can see our numbers increase by by the second. (laughs) Let's do a little quiz. We usually do this briefly in our uh, 50th or holiday specials. On a monthly basis, how long do you believe a regular subscriber listens to Paper Team? Interesting. Here's just a random guess. I'm going to say people listen to about an hour of Paper Team a month. Hmm, You're pretty close. It's actually an hour and a half. Now, you may be wondering, wait a minute, we release 100 episodes uh, per day. Actually, no, we release uh, four episodes a month. But actually, there's a lot of uh, data that goes into retention rate. So not every single person is going to listen to the entirety of every single episode. That's why it's not technically like five hours worth of content. But still, 90 minutes a month of uh, our regular subscribers. That's uh, that's quite a lot of uh, paper team uh, brainwashing. Right. For example, some people might uh, tune out of the episode once we start talking about statistics. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I see how it is. But how many total hours of content are listened to every month on average, do you think? Total hours. So that must be the number of our listeners by how many things. So if the average is an hour and a half, I'm going to say in a month, I don't know, 400 hours. Mm, You're actually pretty close. It's 401 hours on average. Wow. Do I win a prize? Right on the money. You win the continuation of your hosting abilities on this podcast. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. I'm not going to quiz you on our top episodes because we already covered those. Obviously, that's our pilot 101. It's uh, also our uh, pilot uh, case study one, as well as the bringing the TV room one uh, episode. But let's talk about our growth. We've uh, planted a seed back in August 2016, and 
And back then, we released 10 episodes in that month because we released six upfront as well as one in the subsequent weeks. And at the time, we had a total of 2,700 downloads in a month, which is pretty decent for a brand new podcast uh, nobody had heard of. But if you take a look at this month's download rate, uh, which is uh, dated July 28, obviously we're not done with July yet, but it is on track to being our most popular month of all time with nearly 7,500 downloads with five episodes released. Uh, so we essentially tripled our uh, download rate with half the amount of episodes. Nice. Yeah. And speaking of growth, uh, when I started this podcast, I was five foot 10 and now I'm six foot nine. So, wow. Congratulations <laughs> for this really terrible joke. Thank <laughs> all you. Right. I, I, I'm on stilts everywhere. Okay. <laughs> uh, looking at our total amount of downloads, we have just hit 100,000 downloads wow well that's cool who uh i have no idea what i'm saying <laughs> who's downloading this podcast <laughs> that's a good question actually i'm pretty sure the u.s is number one in that list as always with uh australia number two right i mean that's awesome to hear that we have so many people tuning in and listening uh on our end here are a few fun little numbers uh of sort of the content that we've worked through in the process of this podcast we have written 700 pages worth of notes on our google doc it oh takes like 20 minutes to load when we open it up it's kind of ridiculous how many scripts is that <laughs> <laughs> i know we could have been writing scripts this whole time we're not taking our own <laughs> advice what is wrong with us um and then from that we have recorded about 75 hours of content it's like 4468 minutes of released episodes okay but how many seconds Ninety-nine thousand five hundred and six hundred <laughs> minutes whatever that rent song is. sure yeah so that's pretty incredible uh that doesn't include some of our secret episodes that never made it to the air that no one will know about that'll be in a little uh, behind the scenes video one day that also doesn't include really our guest episodes uh, considering that we just write out questions not their answers yeah so <laughs> these 700 pages of notes uh is about a quarter of a million words mm. so again that's how much time we've wasted oh so you're saying in uh Six more years, we'll have written a million words. <laughs> we will indeed. Uh, in terms of the reactions to the podcast, we now have close to 55 star ratings on iTunes. So that's pretty exciting as well. I feel like we're, we're right up there with some of the, the big boys. Absolutely. And what have we been up to in the past couple of years since we started this podcast? Well, yeah, I mean, I touched on this earlier. A lot has changed for us in these two years. Uh, since starting this podcast, uh, I've gotten my first uh, paid freelance writing work. Uh, I've gotten an agent, and then I got staffed uh, on an animated sitcom, uh, along with my writing partner, Kelly, who was a guest back in PT 12 and 14. So it's been uh, a big two years for us. Yeah, I got a manager. I'm also still working on Alter Carbon. I've been working on Alter Carbon for essentially the better part of this podcast. I feel like it's been a, quite a while, uh, but it's wrapping up, so hopefully I get on another show soon. Uh, also, I recently celebrated 10 years of TV calling, a decade of writing stuff about TV writing. We just mentioned a quarter of a million words for this podcast. I feel like if you also add all the words I write on TV calling, it's like half a million probably. They just um, keep re-sleeving you to do more work. Exactly. On Carbon, don't they? Nice, nice reference. <laughs> and also I continue to be an American citizen, uh, which is uh, going well. Hey, you chose <laughs> a bad time, buddy. Yep. <laughs> but uh, what about the show? I think the show also has kind of evolved across uh, that time. Absolutely. I think we've really changed up our format a little. We've introduced the paper scrap segments where we're being a little more topical and talking about you know answering more listener questions uh, we've introduced the paper tease segment which has been going really well uh, people seem to be responding to that and getting a lot out of it and uh, we also tried out this fun little voicemail function right yeah it lasted for <laughs> 
for about a month. Probably longer than that, actually. The page is still up. If you want to send us voicemail, you can do that. paperteam.co slash voicemail. Honestly, we didn't receive enough regular voicemails to warrant keeping that system, but it was an interesting sort of fan interaction that we incorporated. Right. If you want to butt dial us, you can still do that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's not all successes. Aside from that, we've done two um, sold out like WonderCon panels, which have been amazing. And soon we're going to be doing another live panel for the 100th episode at our own sort of theater venue, which again, you can get tickets for at paperteam.co slash panel 100. And we've also been guests on other podcasts like the Wilshon podcast, which you can listen to at paperteam.co slash Wilshon, as well as Hilliard Guess's own screenwriter's rant room. And you can get that episode at paperteam.co slash rant room, all one word. Uh, just recently, we've started our Facebook group, the TV Writers Room, a TV calling community. Uh, and you can find that over at paperteam.co slash group. Uh, if you're joining that, make sure you do answer all of the questions or you'll not be let in. It's a very exclusive Ooh. and fancy. And we also know that we have listeners from professional writers all the way to people picking up their laptop uh, for the first time. They've never heard of this thing called the MacBook before. <laughs> they just started listening to our podcast. They find, they've discovered this thing called Starbucks. Ooh. And they go and sit down. Uh, and yeah. write a script, yes. But we have yeah, <laughs> listeners all around the world. And so, yeah, I guess we hope that our podcast has made it just a little easier to get your foot in the door of Hollywood as a TV writer. You know, just knowing where to start and which way you're headed. And on that note, before we go, we have many thanks to give to a lot of people. Yeah, first up, we want to thank all of the podcast editors we've had over the years we've had to put up with our mumblings <laughs> and ums and ahs and the things that are going to be edited uh. out of this podcast, too. <laughs> so some of those people have been uh, Jason Cohn, Alex Switsky, Evan Schmidt, Chris Anastasi, and we may be forgetting more. We'll, we'll ask someone to edit them back in if we did. <laughs> of course, we would also like to thank all of our guests. I haven't really counted the amount of people we've uh, gotten on this podcast, but it has to be north of 50 at least. Yeah, for sure. We ultimately between guests and, and regulars so i'd say we at least half of our episodes we've had some incredible guests and we've had multiple guests on some episodes mm -hmm. too so we absolutely could not be doing this without you we'd also like to thank jorge gonzalez who has been a staunch supporter of paper team from the early days especially with helping us find sponsors so that we can keep doing uh what we do without going completely broke so uh, thanks for believing in us uh, jorge and on top of that we'd like to thank roadmap writers tracking board scriptation and the other people who have sponsored us along the way we also wanted to give another shout out to miranda ryan aka maza or maz XXX. <laughs> Many X's for her amazing letter that accompanied her episode suggestions. And she closed out this letter by saying, Thank you so much both for all the hard work that goes into this. Please keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome and you're inspiring a whole generation of TV writers. On a personal note, on days when I felt like I could not write or was no good, I put you guys on and went for a walk and it always gave me food for thought or inspired something, or taught me something I didn't know. You make the impossible slash crazy slash stupid slash unachievable dream seem possible. That's amazing. That really, really means a lot to us. And I think that that's what we set out to do, is to, to help people like that. And it means the world to hear that it really is helping. And that's the real thank you of this entire episode, is thank you for listening to us and being part of this amazing community. We could not do it without all of our incredible listeners. And on that note, you can get all the show notes for this very special episode at paperteam.co slash 99, our last two-digit episode. If you'd like to leave us a review, maybe we can bump up those numbers from uh, 50 to 100, we'll see. You can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes and help other people find this podcast and be a part of our awesome community. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them always to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Well, next week is our very, very special 100 100th episode. This is going to
going to be a live event featuring TV writers of all levels, from showrunner to staff writer, both one hours and half hours, discussing their experiences in the room. And if you want to listen to it, you do not have to wait until next Monday because you can attend this event live on Saturday. That's this Saturday, August 4th, starting at 6.30 p.m. at the Greenway Core Theater on Melrose slash Fairfax in West Hollywood. We've assembled a full writer's room of TV writers of all levels, uh, including folks from Veep, Jack Horseman, Alto Corbin, Riverdale, and a lot more to be announced. Tickets are free and we will be accepting donations at the door to cover our own cost of the venue. So really do not miss out on this incredible night. And for more information and registration for this event, you can go to paperteam.co slash panel 100, all one word. Yeah, this is going to be an incredible night. You are going to get a lot out of it if you show up. So we'd love to see you there. It's going to be one for the ages. Paper Team out.